This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. very much into Christmas traditions and uh, things of that nature. And my mom was very into spoiling us. And a lot of what that entailed was uh, make, not us, because uh, on my mom's side, I'm an only child. But um, uh, she was very into spoiling me and kind of making the Christmas experience complete. And uh, that meant making a lot of our favorite foods. It meant uh, decorating for Christmas. It meant uh, doing a lot of the things that I wanted to do, watching the Christmas movies that I might want to watch, getting a lot of my favorite toys. I'll tell you what it did not involve as a child. The elf on a shelf. Are you familiar with this? I feel like this sort of uh, exploded maybe about 15 years ago. Maybe maybe a little more than that, but I don't think so. We did not have this when I was a child, and I haven't really been thinking much of it. But I've always felt, and my wife agrees with me on this, thankfully, that the idea of an elf on a shelf, which if you're not familiar with this, it's uh, the lore of the elf on a shelf is that Santa Claus sends in an elf scout essentially to spy on children from Thanksgiving to Christmas and each morning it appears in a new place for the in the home for children to find. And it's kind of neat. I get it. Um, children look around and say, oh, there's the elf. He's over there. He's over there. I, in an era where the surveillance state is a big problem and where Americans of all ages have come to accept being spied upon by everybody as the norm, the government, their phone company. Uh, the social media companies, everybody. I don't think it's a good idea to train them to accept the fact that they're always going to be watched. So fascinating. Fasc- oh, So this year, Carmine was gifted not one, but two elves on a shelf. I don't know if it's the, the proper way to refer to it is elves on a shelf or elves on a shelf, whatever, or elf on a shelf, whatever. Okay. He's got two elves, okay? And I don't think we're going to put it up because we both feel the same way, my wife and I, that it's not good for Carmine to be trained to expect that someone is always going to be spying on him. So um, I read an article this week, which is that the elf on a shelf business is booming. This has become a massive 
brand. This whole thing apparently stems from a children's book from 2005 written by Carol Abersold and her daughter, Shonda Bell. And uh, Shonda Bell told CNBC that she and her mother played a similar game with her and her twin sister as children, leading them to write and market the story with her as adults. And I think that's great. It's a nice story. I'm glad that they're doing well. Today, these sisters are co-CEOs of the Lumistella Company, which houses the massive Elf brand. And despite criticism from people like me the, that the Elf is creepy and normalizes surveillance, the glassy-eyed dolls have become a full-fledged empire. I'm going to tell you in a moment how many of these elves are sold. I want you to just think about how many you think that is right now. And I'll tell you in a moment. Now, parents are also being encouraged not to just to get the elf on a shelf, but also to buy pets, clothes, accessories, mates, and yes, you guessed it, a carrying case for the for the elf since you're not allowed to touch the elf lest it lose its powers. The elf has also appeared via a Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade balloon, TV specials, a drive-through experience. Now, part of my bitterness about this is probably the fact that I didn't think about something like this because I guarantee you these people are millionaires 10 times over, probably well on their way to being billionaires. Partnerships with brands like Kellogg's, Allstate, and yes, even the Honey Baked Ham. The company has not released recent financial data, but they told Fox Business that Lumistella employs 100-plus people and has adopted, they've adopted out, I should say, 22.9 million-plus elves, pets, and mates to date. So it's become a popular meme format. It's become a Saturday Night Live parody, not to mention inspiration for the Mensch on a Bench, a Hanukkah version developed by Neil Hoffman and featured on the TV show uh, Shark Tank. They have sold 22.9 million plus elves. To me, I can't fathom that at all. I am curious where you fall on the elf on a shelf. Am I being too much of a fuddy-duddy? Do your children have an elf on a shelf? Do your grandchildren have an elf on a shelf? 800-848-9222. On the one hand, because I think this is the point where you have these discussions now, because usually the day after Christmas, and it's part of the reason why it's such a busy shopping day, the the prices on anything Christmas related, Christmas lights, wreaths, all the rest, it just plummets. It just absolutely plummets. And we've got a year uh, before we figure out what we're going to do. As of now, our inclination is not to put up the elf on a shelf and not to do anything with the elf on a shelf. You can, uh, you know, you could persuade me otherwise if you want, but I, I, uh, I I'm not crazy about it. Additionally, I am just amazed that this has become such a massive empire, a bi- legitimate business empire. Uh, 800-848-9222. Larry Elder is going to be here in about 10 minutes. I can't wait to talk with Larry Elder. We have not spoken on the radio since uh, Larry ran for governor of California. And believe it or not, Larry 
is now talking about running for president. Larry's also an attorney, and I'm eager to get his take on what the Supreme Court did with respect to uh, Title 42. Uh, and the border situation in general, because my position is kind of nuanced, and I'm kind of curious what what Larry's position happens to be on this. 800-848-9222. I'll tell you what I am not uh, at all surprised about in terms of booming business around Christmas. Have you ever had a panettone? Panettone is great. It's a, it's bread, but it's 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 like Christmas bread, I guess is the best way to describe it if you're not familiar with it. And the Christmas treat that one chef calls the mountaintop of baking, has become a global moneymaker. It's inspiring contests, laws, and even a debate about how to make it. In the last decade, the Christmas classic, the Panettone, has burst its Italian borders and gained a global profile. Like Basque burnt cheesecake and French croissant, Panettone is being tested and transformed far from home. New flavors like black sesame panettone, Aperol spritz panettone, uh, cacio e pep uh, panettone. There are even Japanese versions leavened with sake leaves, Brazilian ones stuffed with uh, some Brazilian delicacy. That's for the George Santai of the world. Supermarket minis that cost $2 and I'm not joking about this truffled panettone that go for nearly $200. The standard was set for the panettone probably in about 15th century Milan. It was a domed sweet bread with a tender, bright golden crumb, scented and uh, studded with sugared fruit. It belongs to the same luxurious holiday tradition as the fruitcake. And they're made once a year from expensive stores of butter, eggs, refined flour, sugar, spices from Asia, preserved fruit from the Mediterranean. Then they started to throw bits of chocolate in there, regional ingredients like lemon from the Amalfi coasts. And Italy, as it unified as a country, panettone became a national symbol of Christmas and really ultimately the national symbol of Christmas. Now it has exploded worldwide. I read this article in the forward. That's the Jewish newspaper or a Jewish newspaper. And a Jewish chef, an Israeli-American by the name of Roy Schwarzapel, trained under Italy's undisputed panettone master, he is grabbing a big slice of this panettone empire. His panettones sell from something called Roy Cakes for $85 a piece. And the New York Times and the Forward are crediting this baker, Roy Schwarzapel, with spearheading the American Panettone Revolution. Do you buy that? Do you believe it's all this one chef that's spearheading the Panettone Revolution? To me, I'm always so interested in why trends start and why things explode. You know, um, one of the one of the writers that I've really enjoyed reading over the years is Malcolm Gladwell. And Malcolm Gladwell has a, a terrific book called The Tipping Point. And he explores some of these very questions. Why do ideas take shape? Why do ideas, why do trends, why do products explode? And whether we're talking the Elf on a Shelf or the Panettone, I am wondering, look, the Elf on a Shelf has only been around for 17 years. 
The Panatone has been around for at least six and a half centuries. Why now, though, has their time come? Two very different products. One something edible, one something that's designed to be a fun way to spy on children and encourage good behavior. One something that's uh, been around for centuries, the other something relatively new. Why are both of these items having a moment now? What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222 if you have a thought on either or both. The Panatone and uh, the Elf on a Shelf, I think it's pretty interesting. Uh, but if you don't, then uh, you need only rest a couple of hours because those of you that think Panatone discussion and Elf on a Shelf discussion has no place in the wee hours of overnight radio, you are just a few hours away from being frank-free for the rest of the year. So congratulations to you. Let me begin with Mark in Westchester. Hello, Mark. Hey, Frank. I first learned about Elf on a Shelf from my wife, ex-wife, who was born in the Netherlands. And it was just a a way of bringing that majesticness into your house. Did Santa move the elf? You would always put it somewhere where it was obvious. And it kind of, from what I was told by my ex-wife, comes from the same history as Krampus, which is kind of like the evil Santa Claus that would take children from the Netherlands who were bad, put them in burlap saps, beat them with reeds, and then for some reason drop them off in Portugal into the ocean. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I, uh, you know, we I discussed a little bit of Krampus and his tradition as largely a an evil helper of Santa uh, on um, on Friday. Uh, but that's interesting. I didn't realize that the elf on a shelf had similar uh, had similar roots, and I hadn't seen that in any of the research that I did on that. But so, do your I guess your children might be a little old for it now. But how many years did you guys use the elf on a shelf? I would say we did it until maybe my big girl was 10 and my little one was 7. And then they got the gist that it was just a doll. Gotcha. And obviously we had to be moving it because there's nobody breaking into our house to do this. They almost got a tad creeped out that somebody was, you know, uh, somebody was in the house moving the elf and it wasn't us. So, yeah, they outgrew it without question. Thank you, Mark. Uh, have a happy new year. Appreciate your uh, contributions to the program. 800-848-9222. Linda is on Long Island. Hello, Linda. Hi, Frank. I want to comment about that. I think it's a con. I think kids have enough trouble mm. when they're growing up. You know, there's enough to, you know, to cope with. And that, to me, is like, um, it's scary. I think it's scary for a child. It's hard enough for adults, you know, go through so many things. For psychologically, I think it's it's crazy. I mean, you know, kids have to, and their drugs, and you know, they get a little older. They have drugs in front of them now. The new thing with gambling, you know, as they get older, there's so many things that they cope with. I think something like that sounds to me sounds stupid. Well, it doesn't make sense. It's not like Santa Claus. 
Yeah, right? I mean, look, I tend to agree with you, Linda, but I, I don't like to tell uh, other parents what they should do with their children. And look, I listened to Mark just a second ago. It sounds like it was really fun for him and his children and his family, and it sounds like they were having a good time with it. So who am I to tell anybody that uh, that they shouldn't be doing it? But I agree with you. I mean, it looks like the fact that this one company has sold 29 million of these things and the fact that they come keep coming up with a new Elf on a Shelf product, it, it uh, I think it goes to show you that it is kind of just a money-making scheme on the one hand, and two trains children to be looked over by Big Brother, or in this case, Little Elf, in the long term. 800-848-9222. Patrice is, well, let me say hello to, yeah, Patrice is in Brooklyn. Hello, Patrice. Oh, yes. Uh, Merry Christmas, uh, Happy Hanukkah, and a Happy New Year, Frank. Thank uh, you. You too. Yeah, I wanted to, yeah, thank you. I wanted to ask uh, or, or mention something about truffles. Um there are different types of truffles, or rather, truffles are not the same as um, mushrooms. But have you ever eaten truffles, uh, Frank? Uh, uh, yes, not as uh, you know. It's a little expensive for my taste, but yes, I really like truffle uh-huh. oil. I use truffle oil a great deal. Oh, okay. Because uh, both that and uh, mushrooms have um, have fungus uh, as such. And, you know, hopefully we're not allergic to it. But, uh, again, have a happy New Year, Frank. Yeah, talk about it being a little bit of a Debbie Downer there, Patrice. Uh, Perhaps that fungus is the reason I am such a fun guy. Those of you that are holding, uh, we'll get to you a little bit later. The great Larry Elder, the sage of South Central, El Dorado, the man of a thousand nicknames, the man who many people believe, should have been governor of California, the man who says we've got a country to save. He believes that um, there's a possibility that there might be room for him in the presidential race. How come and why? We're going to get into that. And uh, the Supreme Court's decision on Title 42, the border, news of the day stuff. It's always great to talk with Larry Elder. He is uh, a dynamic individual, a great intellect, and certainly somebody with great passion for the issues that, uh, that he talks about on a daily basis. We'll continue with Larry Elder straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The look of love is in your eyes. The look your heart can't don't know this, uh, but um, Dusty Springfield um, was in a relationship with, with someone, and um, they, she moved in with this person in April of 1983, and seven months later, they exchanged vows at a wedding ceremony which was not recognized under California law. 
somebody that might have been in a position to change that had he been elected governor in the recent recall election, is the sage of South Central, a man who for years has been one of the most listened to nationally syndicated radio talk show hosts in the country, a man who is, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, probably the most prominent black conservative commentator in America, and uh, someone who, irrespective of any race, is uh, one of the great uh, intellects of uh, of the broadcast media today. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome back conservative radio and TV talk show host and uh, the former candidate for governor of California, Larry Elder. Larry, uh, Merry Christmas. It's been too long. Thanks for coming on the radio with me. Merry Christmas, Frank. Now, how am I supposed to live up to that? By the way, out of all the names you mentioned, you did not mention the one that I like the most, the black face of white supremacy, which is <laughs> what I was called by an L.A. Times columnist when I ran for governor. By the way, I'm now doing a TV show with Epoch Times. You can find it on Larry with Epoch, E-P-O-C-H dot com, Larry with Epoch dot com. You know, I was going to ask you about that because I caught that on television the other day, and uh, you're as energetic and spirited as ever, and uh, and I think that's great. So um, I want to talk about what you're doing now and some of the issues that the country is facing now and what solutions you may have for them, but a lot of folks, uh, especially in the New York area or in outside of California, you first popped up on their radar screen recently because of the incredible amount of attention that uh, your candidacy for governor got. Initially, you weren't even supposed to be on the ballot. You were on this radio program. You guaranteed you were being on the you're going to be on the ballot. Then everyone said, "Okay, the the main Republican is really running is Caitlyn Jenner. Uh, all these other Republicans are sort of just also ran." Sure enough, uh, you became the most prominent Republican running in that race. Tell me about your experience running. How did you find the race? Are you glad you did it in spite of the result? Yeah, I'm very glad that I did it to take your last part first. Um, I never thought I was going to run for anything, Frank. Like you, I'm, I'm a commentator. I'm an observer. I'm, I'm a critic. I've never, ever run for anything other than third grade class president. Uh, yes, I won that. I know, I know you're going to ask. So I'm 50. <laughs> so I'm one out of two. And um, but I was approached by a lot of people that I respect uh, who asked me to, to consider doing it. And uh, I waited and waited and waited. I got in with about seven and a half weeks left. I wasn't trying to be strategic. But that was about the same time that Arnold Schwarzenegger got into the recall election back in 2003 when we recalled a, uh, a Democrat governor. So I raised twenty two million dollars in seven and a half weeks. I did 100 events. And by that, I mean either an interview on radio, print, TV or a fundraiser or a rally. Uh, and uh, we got 150,000 individual donors. Mostly half of them were outside of California. Uh, and when I the race was over, and by the way, the, the Republican Party uh, did not want me. I was an insurgent candidacy. They wanted a guy named Kevin Faulkner, the two-term mayor of San Diego. Uh, and I carried San Diego County by 30 points. There are 50, uh, 58 counties in California on the replacement side because it was a two-step deal, Frank. If the 50 percent plus one had voted to recall Gavin Newsom, whoever got the most votes on the replacement side would have become governor. There were 46 candidates, counting myself. I got 3.5 million votes, more than almost all the other 45 combined. I carried 57 and 58 counties, uh, and um, it was an extraordinary race. And when I finished it, I went to Key West to chill out. And the reason I gained 15 pounds is because people kept buying me dinners uh, and buying me drinks. And several people said, why don't you run for president? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought it would be easier, frankly, for me to, to, to run and win the presidency than to run and win in California, where a Republican has not won statewide since 2006. All I right. kid you not. I, I want to follow up on a bunch of the things that you said there. But here in New York, we're uh, dealing with this situation involving uh, a congressman elect to a lot of folks. 
believe uh, lied, not believe, but I mean, I think it's pretty much an open secret at this point that he lied to everybody about everything and he got elected. I believe this is a textbook situation for New York to implement some sort of recall formula, not just for George Santos, but for all politicians that sell the voters a bill of goods. Given your experience participating in a recall election up close, what do you think of the recall process? Is that something that New York should take a page from California on? I I think so. And it's interesting because several times when I was running, uh, I was criticized for participating because I was told the recall was undemocratic. It's in our constitution. And uh, shortly after the race, There were three members of the Board of Education in San Francisco, of all places, uh, who were recalled because they spent all their time trying to rename schools uh, and shutting down schools because of the mandate. Uh, Over 70 percent of the voters voted to recall these three left-wing members of the Board of Supervisors, and nobody editorialized that that was undemocratic the way the L.A. Times said about the recall election of Gavin Newsom. (laughs) Right, or the San Francisco DA, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And all of a sudden, uh, it, it's, it's good government, and they were afraid that Gavin Newsom was going to lose. And that's why all of a sudden they began criticizing the recall election. But it's okay to recall a, a, a soft-on-crime DA in the Bay Area, as you pointed out. Okay to recall three irresponsible school board members. That's okay, but it's not okay to recall the governor. Uh, I think it's a perfectly legitimate uh, uh, thing. There, are, I forget how many states have it. I think around 20 states or so have it. I would take a good hard look at it. Regarding this, this guy, George Santos, I mean, he lied about so many things. He lied and said he was Jewish. Uh, said that I think he said that his grandparents were in the Holocaust. I'm not even sure that's true. Um, and he lied about where he worked. Uh, <laughs> and and it's interesting that the New York Times just now decided to look into this guy's background after he got elected. Why didn't they do it before? Yeah, I think that's a question a lot of people are uh, are asking. Uh, last question for me on the um, on the California situation is I, I know you're well aware of the criticism that was hurled your way on every level uh, during that race. And one of the things that was uh, thrown at you in the waning days of that campaign is when you were doing prominent national conservative radio shows and going on national media outlets and even a lot of local talk radio shows like this one in the waning days of the election, a whole bunch of people said, you see, the fact that Larry Elder's on WABC talking to Frank Moreno in New York instead of being out there in California campaigning or focusing on California media, that shows Larry Elder's not serious about running for governor. This is just a publicity stunt on his part. Uh, let me ask you, Larry, any truth to that? Was this a publicity stunt? Of course it wasn't. I, I did it because I felt I had a moral, a patriotic, and a spiritual obligation to do it. I would rather not have done it. So many people I respected asked me to do it. I didn't need, didn't need the money. I didn't do it for the money, obviously. I didn't. I lost a lot of money. I w- was taken off the air right away when I announced. Uh, I didn't need the same. I'm very well known here in California. I did it because I care about the state. I cared about the, the crime. I cared about the homelessness. I cared about the way Gavin Newsom ignored uh, science and shut down the state in a more draconian way than anybody else. I mean, we were already near the bottom of the 50 states in terms of our education, uh, and these kids lost another year of in-person education, math, reading. Uh, 80% of the kids in our public schools in California, Frank, are black and brown, the kinds of people that people on the left claim that they care about, and they were the ones that were that were severely harmed by this, by this uh, lockdown. So that's why I ran. I ran to campaign for school choice. I ran to campaign for lower taxation. We have the highest state income tax rate of all 50 states, 13.3% above a certain level. Uh, we've got a $24 billion deficit, uh, and we have a huge unfunded pension liability. I was given a uh, uh, a briefing on our budget, 
And after the after the briefing, I said, this isn't a budget. This is a crime scene. And uh, so that's where I did it. I tried to do something about this state. For the first time in our state's 170-year uh, history or so, people are leaving California. This never happened before. And they're taking their taxes with them. And unfortunately for me, many of them are taking, taking their votes with them, too. And that's one of the reasons I believe I lost. You uh, had one of the most listened to nationally syndicated radio shows out there. Uh, the company that syndicated your radio show was quoted uh, with some of the executives from that company after the election saying, this is great. This is probably going to lead to more and more stations wanting to carry Larry. It was a great show. It was doing very well. I would listen driving in every night on my way to work. Um, and I know you're doing great with your TV show on uh, with the Epoch Times. But why did you choose to step away uh, from nationally syndicated? Indicated radio at a time when it seemed that show was really poised for even greater ratings growth and even greater revenue. A couple of reasons. I had done radio for 30 years. I did TV, by the way, 10 years before I did radio. I got a great offer from Epoch Times, and they're much more flexible in terms of taking off time because I'm oh. going to be, uh, if I decide to run, going to be going to Iowa and, and New Hampshire. I already have taken time off to do that. You really can't do that with radio. These guys are being a, a lot more flexible for that. But I haven't closed the door. In the unlikely event, Frank, that I lose uh, when I run for the presidency, I I'm still have a great relationship with, with Salem. I just uh, talked with one of the executives the other day day. And so there's a chance I may return to radio in the event that things don't work out. Okay. All right. Well, that's uh, that's uh, uh, great to hear from those of, for those of us that are elder radio fans. All right. Let's talk about the presidential race. You used to, as the L.A. Times uh, pointed out during your election for governor, you used to mock the idea of running for office. Uh, people would always talk to you about running for mayor, governor, even president. You're quoted uh, in this Times article as saying they can't pay me enough. I can't take the pay cut to go into politics uh, or a bunch of other things that you would say about potentially running for office. Why are you considering running for president now? Because I think I can bring a couple of things to the table that the other candidates can't bring. Obviously, I'll be talking about the fact that our borders are overrun, uh, the fact that uh, Title 42 might go away, uh, the fact that we've got uh, a 40-year high of, in of inflation. Uh, the fact that we're no longer energy independent. Obviously, we're, I'll be talking about those kinds of things. But there are two major things I think, Frank, I bring to the table the others don't. And the first is I think I can attack this lie that America is systemically racist, maybe with a greater credibility uh, than other people can. My father never knew his biological father, left home at the age of 13, Athens, Georgia, Jim Crow South, when Jim Crow was really Jim Crow, not Jim Eagle, as Joe Biden put it. Uh, my dad cleaned toilets, two full-time jobs cleaning toilets, joined the Marines. Uh, he ended up starting a small cafe, and when my dad died, his net worth was a little bit under a million dollars. My dad was a lifelong Republican and told me, my brothers and me, that Democrats want to give you something for nothing. When you try to get something for nothing, you almost always end up getting nothing for something. It is a lie that America is systemically racist, and Barack Obama made things worse. When he entered the White House, both blacks and whites thought race relations were going to improve. When he left, both blacks and whites thought they got that it, race relations got worse. Why? Every time the man had a chance to say something healing, he went the wrong way. From the Cambridge police acting stupidly to embracing Al Sharpton uh, to saying that racism is in America's DNA to saying if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. 
to embracing Black Lives Matter, to having Eric Holder, his uh, AG, who once said that America is perniciously racist, and mentioned voter ID, which the majority of blacks want as an example of America's pernicious racism. He made things worse, got a higher percentage of the white vote than John Kerry did four years earlier. By the way, uh, Donald Trump got a lower percentage of the white vote than Romney did four years earlier. And the city of over 100,000 that that voted most for uh, Donald Trump was Abilene, Texas. Uh, He got about 85 percent of the vote. Guess which city a few months after they voted for uh, Donald Trump voted for their first black mayor, Abilene, Texas. It is a lie that America is systemically racist. The second thing I bring to the table, Frank, uh, is to talk about the 800-pound elephant in the room that our side uh, does not talk enough about, and that is the large number of children who enter the world without a father married to the mother. Forty percent of of uh, all American kids entered the world without a father in the home married to the mother, 70% of black kids, half of all Hispanic kids, 25% of white kids. And I'll quote Barack Obama. He once said a kid raised without a father is five times more likely to be poor and commit crime, uh, uh, nine times more likely to drop out, and 20 times more likely to end up uh, in jail. Now, the question is, how have we gone from having 25% of black kids born outside of wedlock uh, in 1965 to nearly 70% now? And the answer is the welfare state. We've incentivized uh, women to marry the government. And we've incentivized men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility. And we ought to be talking a lot more about that. Everything else we talk about, crime, dropouts, it's all related to the breakdown of the family, not having a father in the home married to the mother. It, where is the process of – where is your decision-making process at this point? At What's your timetable for making a decision, and what are the factors going to be in whether or not you decide to run? Well, I've already been to Iowa probably about four or five times and met with the current governor, met with the former governor. His name is Terry Branstad, longest-serving governor, not in the history of Iowa, in the history of America served governor for 24 years. And I've met with him. I've met with his son. Uh, he knows the state. Both of, both of them know the state well, and I have a good relationship with him. I'm not saying they're endorsing me, but I've got a good relationship with them. I've given a number of speeches, fundraisers, a campaign for a guy named Zach Nunn, uh, who won his congressional race in Iowa, uh, and I campaigned for some other people out there. Uh, and I've been to New Hampshire. So if I decide to run, probably I'll announce sometime in late March, early April. Of and next of year, of 2023? Will, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, of next year. And one of the factors will be whether or not I can attract uh, a sufficient money. Uh, probably take about 3 or $4 million to run credibly uh, in Iowa. I'm going to need to raise money. I've got a pack called ElderForAmerica.com. I'm asking people to throw a little something in the tip jar and help me out. And if I can get some, some uh, major donors uh, or some small uh, – amounts to to uh, to raise that kind of money, uh, then I'm going to go for it. The uh, obviously you're more well aware than anybody that uh, the most prominent Republican presidential candidate so far, at least declared presidential candidate, is former President Donald Trump. And uh, a lot of folks that are uh, diehard uh, Trump supporters, they view uh, anybody that would even consider running against Trump, whether it's Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, or even Larry Elder, as being incredibly disloyal to someone that they view as a, a great president. Obviously, you've got a very unique message and a terrific message that I don't think any of the other candidates talking about running on the Republican side would be in a position to highlight. But are you opposed to Trump as the nominee? If he emerges as the Republican nominee after a primary contest, could you see yourself supporting him? Or uh, are you firmly in that Trump alternative camp? 
Oh, no, I could see myself supporting him. I thought he was a great president. I campaigned for him and with him when he ran in 2016. And when I ran out here for, for governor, there were, uh, as you pointed out, Caitlin Jenner, uh, the former mayor of San Diego, another guy named uh, Kevin Kiley uh, that the state party wanted, uh, the former uh, uh, candidate for governor, the one that Gavin Newsom defeated, his name was John Cox. He ran in the recall. A guy named Doug Osi, who was a former uh, uh, member of the House, he ran also in the recall. I didn't say one negative thing about any of my Republican rivals. Uh, they did not return the favor, but I didn't say one negative thing about any of my Republican rivals. And I don't intend to do that here. I think Donald Trump was an extraordinarily effective president, uh, I, and I have no issue whatsoever with him uh, becoming the, the nominee again. I'm just going to talk about the kinds of things that I mentioned. Again, most notably the lie that America is systemically racist and the fact that we need to begin embracing fathers, uh, and, and that's we have a fatherlessness crisis in America, and we need to talk more about that. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Larry Elder. You could uh, catch him on TV regularly with this TV program that he does with the Epoch Times, or you could check out his uh, political action committee by going to elderforamerica.com if you want to learn more about what he's up to and if you want to offer a contribution as he goes through this process of considering a presidential run. Larry, uh, again, not to sound the same question that I asked you about the governor's race, but there are some people that are all raising, already raising the prospect that this is a publicity stunt. They look at other uh, people that have run for president who were perceived as uh, not necessarily having a great shot at winning, but ended up getting a national TV platform. Folks like Al Sharpton or Andrew Yang or Alan Keyes, uh, Mike Huckabee. Is this, would this be, in addition to being a forum for talking about ideas, would this be a publicity stunt? Well, once again, no. I mean, look at Donald Trump. When Donald Trump first announced, virtually nobody thought he had his shot. This guy uh, hadn't even held office, had never been a general, never worked in government, never even ran before. I at least ran uh, for sure. the fourth, fourth uh, biggest economy uh, in the in the country. Uh, Jimmy Carter came came out of nowhere. Nobody gave Joe Biden a chance. This was his third time. Uh, and it looked like he was not going to not going to make it. So the idea that uh, I've got no shot and this is all publicity stunt. Uh, again, I, I already have a national uh, platform. I already have a big social media footprint. I already had a nationally syndicated show with 1.5 million or so people listening to me every day. Uh, I'm, I'm already there. I'm doing this because I give a damn about America. I think America is worth saving. And I think that, that we're in trouble with this wokeism, uh, with the infusion of all these left wing people coming out of universities. They couldn't get jobs in universities, and now they go and work with places. Places like Twitter and Facebook uh, and YouTube and Google and are undermining the foundation of this country. And we're at each other's throats unnecessarily. So I want to do something about that. It, about I know until about 20 years ago or so, you were actually a registered libertarian and you identified as a as a libertarian. Is there any scenario in which you could see if you don't get the Republican nomination in 2024 that you might run for president as a libertarian or a third party candidate? Well, correction, I've never been a registered libertarian. I am a small L libertarian uh, and a registered Republican, just like Milton Friedman. And no, I would never run as a libertarian. Uh, all, all, they, all they do is siphon away votes uh, that otherwise would go to the Republican Party. There are several races around this country where if the libertarian hadn't gotten the 3 or 4 or 5% that they often get, we'd have, a, uh, we'd have control of the Senate. So no, I would never, ever consider doing that. But I'm not a registered – I'm not a capital L libertarian, never have been. Is it safe to say that you are a vote against reparations both in California and in other states that might be exploring it? 
reparations is the extraction of money from people who are never slave owners to be given to people who are never slaves. The whole thing is absolutely absurd. Uh, it happened Slavery happened so long ago, figuring out who, what, where, when, and why, and and only about, according to Michael Medved, my former colleague at Salem, only about 5% of white people have any sort of generational connection to slavery. Uh, it's, it's absurd. And are we going to go back to Africa and, and get money from them? Because without the complicity of African chieftains, uh, the African and the Arab African slave trade never could have taken place. You know that movie that's out right now called The Warrior King or Warrior Woman? Sure, I haven't seen it, but the, I've, the, I've the, heard the, of it. The, yeah. the, woman, the Woman King. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the bad guys are the white slavers, when in reality the, the homey uh, group of women, and they did exist, were, were trading partners with the white uh, slavers because they would raid uh, neighboring villages, capture the, uh, the, 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 the people, sell them off uh, to the uh, European slavers, uh, and we're supposed to forget all about that. So if America were to, were to uh, pay reparations, do we then go to Africa and to the Middle East and, and get the money back from those guys? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, could be a way to fund the campaign. Who knows? Uh, give me your thoughts on the Supreme Court decision on Title 42 yesterday. It looks like uh, Title 42 will remain in place until at least February, until the court can make a, a broader decision on the Biden administration's plan to do away with Title 42. Well, well, it's common sense, and I'm happy you pointed out it was the Biden administration that initiated the lawsuit to overturn uh, the implication of, of Title 42, just as they've uh, pulled back from other Trump policies, including the Remain in Mexico policy, and we have this disaster on the border. By the way, most people are unaware we have a disaster on the border. I just saw a poll that found out the average American believes that uh, that 250,000 illegal aliens came into the country last year. They're off by a factor of 10. That's because I watch Fox News, I watch Bill Malugin uh, do his report, and I cut over to CNN or to MSNBC, which is what I call it, to see if they're covering it. They're not even covering it. So half the country is completely oblivious to the fact that we've got a real crisis. Mm-hmm. There are 5 million people in this country illegally since Joe Biden has taken over. And you know the consequences. We've got the fentanyl. You have the crime. Uh, you have the cost of housing, the cost of educating, the cost of, 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 of health care. Uh, it's outrageous what's going on on the borders. And, it's, and I think the reason people are not marching on Washington, D.C., Frank, with pitchforks is because they just don't know what's going on. If we learn anything from the Twitter file stuff, we know that a lot of Americans never get the information. They're unaware of things that uh, people on the right talk about. They were unaware of the Hunter Biden laptop story. They're completely unaware of how many people have entered this country illegally and, and, uh, and the negative consequences about that. One of, the, uh, one of the people that dissented in the Supreme Court's case on Title 42, their decision was uh, Justice Gorsuch, who politically and legally generally is a conservative, generally ends up on the conservative line of the, the side of the ledger. He said in his dissent, we are a court of law, not policymakers of last resort. It sounded to me like he was saying, while he doesn't necessarily agree with this as a policy, he doesn't think it's the role of the Supreme Court to nullify the elected branches of the government. What did you say to that argument? I know you're an attorney as well. Well, I just I just disagree with it. Um, you know, the, the, the Title 42 is their design 
because of a health emergency. Now, the Biden administration still tells us that uh, we have a crisis because of COVID. On the other hand, uh, they don't want to implement Title 42 to, to make sure that the people who come in this country uh, are not bringing in, uh, in, in, in diseases, not, not bringing in uh, uh, more COVID. I, I, don't, I don't get it. I, I just think that uh, it's common sense. We have borders. One of the things that, uh, that uh, is in the Constitution uh, is the federal government's job is to, uh, is to police our borders, and, and we're just not doing it. Larry Elder, check him out at uh, LarryElder.com or ElderForAmerica.com. Larry, something tells me we're going to be speaking quite a bit over the course of the next year and a half. I appreciate you taking the time. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Same to you, Frank. Appreciate it. Thank you. If you want to comment... On any portion of my discussion with Larry Elder, you're welcome to do so, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222, or anything else that we have covered thus far this morning, or anything else that you want to comment on, or anything you might have questions about. So uh, since we're not doing Ask Frank Anything um, today or you know this week, we're going to be a little bit more liberal in terms of allowing off-topic callers to get in. So anything that's on your mind or anything you have questions about, now's the time. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Kiss. Do you love me? 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we're, uh, we're talking about. Coming up in about 10 minutes, I'm going to be talking with Bill Burns. I love talking to Bill Burns. Bill Burns is one of my favorite people to talk to. You get the sense that he's one of these guys that you could throw any question at, no matter how outlandish, no matter how wild, and he would take it on its face and answer it thoroughly and comprehensively. Well, you're not going to believe this. Well, maybe you will. I don't know. I can't speak to your level of belief or disbelief. But, you know, President Obama has this um, this documentary production company that is in a partnership with Netflix. And they've actually produced some good stuff. There's one that I highly recommend, and I mentioned this last year because it was nominated for an Oscar. It's called American Factory. I don't care what your politics are. That documentary is a must-watch for every American. If you care about the future of the American workforce or if you care about China China displacing American jobs or if you care about uh, the future of the organized labor movement or anything, this film, it was phenomenal. I don't know that I've seen anything else they've done, but that was quite good. So I'm willing to... Watch anything that they produce with an open mind. Well, now, believe it or not, this Obama production company is planning to make a documentary about Barney and Betty Hill. Do you remember Bar- uh, Barney, uh, excuse me, Betty Hill, the uh, Barney and Betty, I'm thinking of uh, of Flintstones, um, Betty Hill. The Barney, yeah, actually, it is Betty and Barney Hill. I guess they were named from the Barney and Betty Hill 
were a couple in 1960s New Hampshire that claimed they were abducted by extraterrestrials, everything about their story checks out. They were examined. Their story was examined. This is probably the most credible uh, alien abduction and one of the earliest in the, in the 20th century that people started giving widespread media attention to. So a lot of people are wondering, why would President Obama be making a documentary about such a prominent alien abduction? What does he know that we don't? Those are some of the questions I'm going to ask uh, Bill, Burn, Bill Burns. And also my latest obsession is this AI chat bot, which is probably a better writer than I am, which is not saying much. But uh, I'm looking forward to that conversation. There's a bunch of other things I want to ask him about. Took Carmine to the pediatrician yesterday for some shots and for a wellness visit. Our pediatrician has now moved to a less convenient location. Instead of being 15 seconds away, he's now a 15-minute drive away, which is not great. I don't love that. But the thing that I was struck by when I got there is why do I have to fill out 10 forms all with his name, my name, my wife's name, his date of birth, my date of birth, and my wife's date of birth. Now, ideally, all of the records from – and I'm seeing the same pediatrician. All of the records from the prior pediatrician's office would have been transferred to this new pediatrician's office. Instead, I'm holding a, a baby that's wailing around, that's flailing his arms and legs and not happy about the fact that he has to wear a coat. And, and I'm holding him down with one hand and I'm trying to fill out this form because I went, you know, my wife was working. I had to go by myself, fill out this form with my other hand. But if you need this information, why do I have to fill out five forms all with the same information? To me, it just uh, reeked of being unproductive. I don't get it at all. All right. 800-848-9222. He is now, in spite of what Curtis Lee may say tomorrow if he's here, he is now 21 pounds and 31 inches. So that's his current weight and length. I know Curtis likes to exaggerate. 800-848-9222. Uh, Paul is in White Plains. Hello, Paul. Uh, you're all over the place. We went from Panatone to Elf on the Shelf to Larry Elf. That's the way we I do like it how- here, Paul. That's the way we do it. I like how you left off. We're going to hear a lot more from you in the future. Uh, with the Bo Snerdly, too, the, I think there will be a big rise in the black conservatives, and we're going to start hearing more people jumping ship, and uh, Larry's extremely eloquent, and you handled the interview great, and I agree. I think we'll hear more of that in the future. Uh, that the Actually, my question, I had two questions. Number one is uh, my ears pricked up to your upcoming, uh, I believe, a podcast on the mob. I didn't get all the information, and I was wondering if you could give us all that again. Because I don't think there's ever been an authoritative, any authoritative uh, retrospective, little bits and pieces on the mob, but not a big whatever. And you had not you had my interest there. Well, I, I'm going to talk it, about it a little bit later, but it's called The okay. Racket Report. You can uh, get it at um, at WABCRadio.com if you click on uh, on podcasts. You can uh, if you have uh, iTunes, you can uh, just search The Racket Report. You can go to RedApplePodcastNetwork.com. Though I don't mean to, you know, toot my own horn here. I have a question. Yeah. I have a question. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I remember the first day that uh, Curtis Lewell went on the air with Mob Talk. I was casually listening to the radio. I think it was two, three in the afternoon. I wasn't really paying attention, and I heard Curtis go on the air, and he started rattling off names. 
And I said to myself, are you crazy? This is New York. Are you out of your mind? What the hell are you doing? This is a dangerous thing. But again, my ears pricked up like, are you crazy? And sure enough, it didn't end so well. My question to you is, uh, do you feel sometimes a little unsafe uh, either talking or being around these people? Is, it a, is that a safe thing to do? I mean, some of these guys are still fairly dangerous, aren't they? Well, it's a good question, Paul, especially, uh, you know what, uh, Paul, I am, uh, I want to address your question thoroughly, and I can't do it in the minute that I have here, but if you want to call okay. back in, uh, in, uh, the, in an hour, I will address it thoroughly, or if you don't want to call back, I will just answer your question thoroughly, and in an, in an hour, because I don't want to rush through a response in 40 seconds to what's kind of a complicated, nuanced question. Uh, Great interview with Larry. Great thank you. Interview. Thanks, Paul. Great call. Great call. Very thoughtful. 800-848-9222. Uh, everybody else that is holding, I'm sorry we didn't get to more of you, but uh, that's what you get for, you know, Paul being such a fascinating caller everyone else that's holding uh, i will get to you you're welcome to hold or you're welcome to call back whatever you choose to do it's like one of those books i used to read as a kid choose your own journey turn to title 42 excuse me turn to page 42 if you'd open that door turn to page 58 if you would close that door uh you can call again you can call back or you can hold whatever the case may be we're going to get into it with Bill Burns in just a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. guest that I end up fielding more email questions about than Bill Burns after he's on this show. People ask me questions about, that was such a wide-ranging interview. Which book should I start with that he's written? Uh, there is so many fascinating things that uh, that Bill Burns writes about on a daily basis. Obviously, my interest is uh, extends to the world of UAPs slash UFOs, and I think he's really one of the foremost authorities on that subject. You might have seen him on shows like uh, Ancient Aliens and a bunch of other shows on the History Channel and elsewhere, but he's written about history, he's written about uh, comedy, he's written about the history of comedy. The guy is a wonderful writer and, a, and somebody that um, is a fascinating, fascinating person to talk to. He is a New York Times best-selling author. He's written many books, including The Day After Roswell. He's been the publisher of UFO Magazine and the editor of the UFO Encyclopedia. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome back Bill Burns. Bill, thanks so much for joining me. Happy New Year. Oh, same to you, Frank. Happy New Year. So it's funny. I was watching Ancient Aliens the other day, and it was an episode that you were on, and it dealt with a subject that we've talked quite a bit about, namely uh, aliens and the presidency and what various presidents, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, uh, so on and so forth, might have known about uh, aliens or UFOs over the years. And I thought you were really interesting in that. But once again, in this piece, in this special, 
the story that I've heard many times before from you and others about Richard Nixon and Jackie Gleason was brought to light. And somebody happened to be in the room uh, that, you know, I had a visitor over, I was watching this, and somebody happened to be in the room and they said to me, I don't believe that story. I don't believe that Jackie Gleason would ever have access to any top secret alien information, even if he did befriend Richard Nixon. Um, For the sake of the skeptics out there, Bill, would you relate that story one more time and uh, reiterate what the sourcing is for that Jackie Gleason, Richard Nixon story? Sure. Uh, Personally, for me, the story came from Jackie Gleason's widow, Barbara Taylor. Barbara Taylor was the sister of June Taylor. Remember the June Taylor dance on the Jackie Gleason show? That was his sister. That was her sister. She was married to Jackie. She told me that when Jackie came back from Florida, um, he was a changed human being. uh, He told her the story of how Richard Nixon picked him up in a car late at night, drove him to the Air Force Base to uh, to see the alien in, um, in deep freeze. And she said he was so shaken. And the fascinating part about that story, Frank, was that Um, Jackie Gleason and Richard Nixon were good friends. They were both friends with B.B. Rebozo down in Florida. And Gleason had a library of paranormal books. It was bigger than Shirley MacLaine's paranormal books. He was a firm believer in the paranormal. And Jackie knew that during the Eisenhower administration, there was this story, it was called The Stranger at the Pentagon, that, that was the book, about supposedly an extraterrestrial who claimed he was from Venus and contacted President Eisenhower. And Eisenhower, and there's a backstory about that too, because Eisenhower had actually seen UFOs when he was um, in Operation Mainbrace in the, um, in the North Atlantic, um, in the North Sea, Um, Off the United Kingdom, it was the first NATO exercise um, in like 1951, 1952. Eisenhower actually saw a UFO coming out of the water. So when the stranger supposedly who claimed he was from Venus, his name was Valiant Thor, I don't know where they got that name from, but approached Eisenhower and Eisenhower said to Nixon, you're in charge of this, take him to the Pentagon. And supposedly that was the alien that Richard Nixon took to the Pentagon. It was 1953 or 54. In Jackie Gleason heard that story, and he was bugging Nixon for 10 years, over and over again. Tell us about the alien. Tell us about the guy from Venus. Tell tell us what Eisenhower wanted you to do. And finally, one night in Florida, according to Barbara Taylor, um, Gleason's widow, Nixon shows up at Jackie Gleason's residence, which is one Secret Service person in the car, nobody else. Gleason is astounded. He, ta- he says, get into the car. They get into the car, they drive to Homestead Air Force Base. The guard at the gate is, is, is thunderstruck to see the president. They let him on the base. Nixon directs the car all the way to a um, distant corner of the base. 
and there in deep freeze is the body of an alien. And it is the alien that Nixon supposedly took to the Pentagon. Jackie Gleason, who had this fanboy belief in the paranormal, was confronted with the reality of his own beliefs. And Barbara Taylor said his personality completely changed. Then you'd say to me, but it's only Barbara Taylor. Who else did you speak to? I spoke to the head of Sony Television. And he told me that when, in fact, he was the one that told me that I had to investigate the story further and call Barbara Taylor. Because when Jackie Gleason, remember when he came back from Florida, he was in a movie with Tom Hanks called Nothing in Common. And supposedly when he got on that set at Sony Pictures in Culver City, he was poetic about what Richard Nixon showed him. Mm. He told the heads of Sony, told Tom Hanks, told everybody he met, including Barbara Taylor. And they all described the same thing. So, yes, I would believe that story happened. Uh, well, I do, too, and I believe it as well, and I find it uh, very, very compelling. One of the other um, things that I noted the last time that we spoke on the radio is I received, uh, at the conclusion of our interview, uh, an uh, SMS text message from a pretty prominent politician here in the New York area who listens to this show regularly, and he says, that was great. You should have him on every day. I'm so interested in the UFO issue and the UAP issue. And I said, why don't you ever say that? Why don't you ever talk about that publicly as a a public policy matter? And he says, well, I don't want people to think that I'm a kook and I don't want to run for office being the UFO candidate. Now, Harry Reid pointed out, before he passed away, obviously, that he was not hurt at all by his advocacy for uh, the UAP disclosure and things of that nature. You are the, I don't know if it's an elected uh, position, but you are the auditor in Solibury Township, Pennsylvania. It's, ele- it's elected position. It's an elected position. Right. So you, you're an elected official who has mm-hmm. no qualms about talking about this stuff. Why do you think more elected officials and aspiring elected officials around the country aren't more um, in the Bill Burns or Harry Reid mold? Why do you think so many politicians are reticent to talk about this subject publicly, even when they themselves have a sincere interest in it? And the answer to that question comes directly from President Obama. When Barack Obama was on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, remember that? Yes. Um, Jimmy Fallon asked him. He kept on pushing him. I couldn't believe it. You know, the president says, there's Jimmy Fallon pushing him. Come on, tell us about UFOs. Tell us about UFOs. And finally, Obama said this, which is why his Netflix special is so interesting. Obama said this, they tell me not to talk about it. So he didn't say it's not true, Frank. He didn't say it's a myth. He didn't say it's a joke. He said, I was told not to talk about it. That's funny. Who tells the commander-in-chief of the United States military not to talk about something? It's a great question, and uh, I think it's a perfect segue to our next discussion about this new documentary production. Uh, before we talk about the documentary, I think it might be helpful helpful to some people to understand the context behind Barney and Betty Hill. Who were Barney and Betty Hill? I was friends with Betty Hill. 
I interviewed her for UFO magazine, and I, I knew her pretty well. Um, Barney and Betty Hill were an interracial couple. Here is a story. Let me just set this up the way it needs to be set up. The experiences of Barney and Betty Hill not only led to our landing on the moon, but they also led to the assassination of JFK. And here's the story. Barney and Betty Hill were an interracial couple. She was white. She was um, she worked uh, for um, social services. Barney was black, and he was um, he worked for the United States Post Office. They were a couple who lived. This is 1961, Frank. Uh, this was their second marriage. This was 1961. And this was seven years before the Supreme Court decision in Loving versus Virginia, which made um, in uh, which barred the states from prohibiting interracial marriages. Okay, it made interracial marriages legal in the United States, made it constitutional. This is 1961. You remember. Um, maybe you don't. 1961 it was the beginning of the civil rights movement in the South. Birmingham, the, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, all those things were happening in the South. The South was exploding. So Betty and Barney Hill decide, let's get out of here. They live in New Hampshire, Portsmouth. Let's get out of here. Let's go up to Canada for a vacation. So they hop in the car, pack up their belongings, go off to Canada for a quick vacation. As they're driving home back to New Hampshire, they see a light over their car, and they think, ah, the moon's very bright tonight, driving along. But the light seems to be following them. Wherever they go, there's a light, and they're driving along roads they know. Finally, as the light seems to be getting bigger, what they do is they pull into this place, and I was there. It's called the Franconian Notch. It's a ski resort. And they, they get out of the car and they stand and they're looking at this thing circling in the sky. Suddenly, the light, which is a circular light, stops dead in the sky, Frank. Dead in the sky. It's not a helicopter. There's no sound. And then they get nervous. And the light seems to grow bigger. And Barney says to Betty, because Betty told me this, they're following us. They see us, Barney says. They hustle back in their car and they take off. For some reason, Barney turns the car off on a side road. Suddenly, the object is hovering directly over the car, moves in front of them, and lands. Now, Barney is panic-stricken. He doesn't know what the hell this is. He draws his gun. Betty, he says to Betty, get out, run. She gets out of the car. She tries to run. She's grabbed. She's wearing a black dress. She's grabbed by these small, gray, humanoid creatures. Um, they drag her into a clearing. Barney, that's where she sees Barney. He's being dragged into a clearing. Suddenly, from the trees, a, a kind of a gangplank drops down. It's a ship. They're taken aboard the ship, and their memories end. The next thing they know, now this is conscious memory. The next thing they know, Frank, 
They are at the edge of their own, on a road they know leading into their own driveway. And they look at the clock on the car, and two and a half hours have passed. Mm. And they can't account for that time. The next morning, Betty calls her sister. And on the phone is her niece, Kathleen Martin, a friend of mine. Who's been a guest on the show, who's really great, a very informative lady. Yes. And Betty tells her the entire story up until she sees Barney at the ramp. So the the idea that they didn't know what was happening to them, they knew what was happening because she told her her niece. Barney is, first of all, Barney has high blood pressure. He's got hypertension. And he starts getting all these physical symptoms. He can't sleep at night. He's constantly nervous. He's irritable. Um, He can't eat. And they take him to a doctor, and the doctor finds nothing physically wrong with him. And he says, I can't sleep. I can't eat. I'm I'm nervous. I'm not doing my job. The doctor says, I have an idea goes to a psychiatrist. And that's when Barney explains what they saw on the road. The psychiatrist says, I know exactly who you should speak to. I know the person. Do you remember the movie, Frank? It was called Captain Newman, M.D. Sure. It was with Bobby. Okay. And this doctor was would treat pilots who had PTSD, and they would get him back in, in the uh, B-17s to go bomb again. Um, he was a flight doctor, a flight surgeon. They take, Barney goes to this guy, Benjamin Simon, renowned psychiatrist, very renowned psychiatrist, and he regresses Barney and Betty and puts it on tape, records the session, but doesn't tell, tells them to forget about it when they wake up, forget about it, but the tape still exists, and he has a transcriber, this young lady, who types in shorthand, writes that in shorthand what's on the tape, and then transfers the shorthand to a typescript. She's a typist, sonographer. And she is so, bl- she hears the story of what happened. They're taken aboard a spacecraft, they're examined by extraterrestrials. Betty is shown a star map where they came from. It's a very cordial, it's a very cordial um, interaction. They examine Betty, they examine Barney, they examine Barney, they want to see his sperm, how do you have children? And they deposit him back in the car and send him home. Betty tells the story and Barney tells the story as they regress. When they wake up, they don't remember it. The transcriber is so goes so crazy over this story, she takes it to a reporter for the Boston Traveler magazine. He gets so crazy. He says, I can't believe this. He takes it to the Boston newspapers. They publish the story. Now, get this. Betty and Barney Hill still don't know what happened aboard the craft because they were told to forget it, not to remember the session. When they read about it, it's the first time they're reading about it. And then they find out that the Air Force 
from Peace Air Force Base, Peace Air Force Base in New Hampshire, they're investigating it. Then they find out that other people have seen that same light in New Hampshire. So there's proof all over the place that it was real, Frank. Barney gets sicker and sicker. And finally, he dies from high blood pressure. And Betty travels the country holding her big UFO um, Mm -hmm. head um, and telling the story. That story, this is 1961. Now they're on the cover of Look Magazine, an interracial couple, get this, at a time when interracial marriages are not legal in the United States, an interracial uh, couple on the cover of Look Magazine talking about being abducted by aliens. Obviously, That's what's on the cover of Look Magazine. It's as fascinating a an experience as I've ever heard, and I give this couple a great deal of credibility, and I don't see what uh, interest anybody would have to concoct something that, um, <laughs> that you know, it really seems there's pretty compelling proof of. And the story gets worse. Well, I was going to ask about the, the Kennedy, about the Kennedy situation, Kennedy. John F. Kennedy. Right. Exactly. John F. Kennedy is the president. John F. Kennedy hears the story. Get this. Here's the story of Betty and Barney Hill. Then says, we have to go to the moon. Okay? Two and two equals four. Then, when Kennedy is having, when Kennedy breaks up with Marilyn Monroe, he's having an affair with Marilyn Monroe. We all know this. This is not fake. We know this. Um... He's having his first He breaks up with Marilyn Monroe, who calls Bobby Kennedy at the Justice Department, and here's what she says. How do we know she says it? J. Edgar Hoover thought that Marilyn Monroe was a mob mall because of the Rat Pack. Sure. Right? He thought she was the mob, controlled by the mob. And that was one. The other person was um, Dulles. Who believe that? Um, who believe that? Um, who believe that um, Kennedy was in bed with the mob? Joe Kennedy was in bed with the mob. We know that he was friends with Meyer Lansky during Prohibition. They were uh, they were importing booze into New York Harbor. So um, he's taping Marilyn Monroe's phone call to the Justice Department. So this tape of Marilyn Monroe is transcribed by both the CIA. And the FBI. It's in my book, UFOs in the White House. I reprinted it. The Marilyn Monroe says to Bobby Kennedy, she leaves this message. I know that your brother is talking about the secret air base in Nevada, Area 51, and that there are things from outer space that they keep there. And there are little men from outer space who live there. That's what Marilyn Monroe says on tape. Mm. A few months later. She is suicided. She's given a bunch of drugs that put her into a coma. She drinks. Peter Lawford is at the house, and he tells the maid not to wake her up, and she dies that night. She's gone. Kennedy has this – JFK has this really bad habit of, when he goes to New York, slipping away from his Secret Service detail and hooking up with women around Columbus Circle near the Carlisle Hotel. Um, the Secret Service is beside itself. He could be abducted by the Soviets, right? Um, Taken away. He knows all the nuclear secrets. So they're worried. So, but Kennedy has also revealed to Marilyn Monroe one of the deepest state secrets. 
that the United States at an air base in Nevada has UFOs and live aliens. After After Marilyn Monroe was suicided, Kennedy is assassinated. And Nixon continues the Kennedy, and they were good friends, by the way, in the Senate. Sure. Uh, Nixon and the House, um, by the way, and the House, and Nixon um, extends Kennedy's uh, mandate and takes us to the moon in nineteen sixty in nineteen sixty nine. That's the importance of Betty and Barney Hill. Uh, they started something. I'm going to ask now, you the to pause. Is, there. Why are the Obamas doing this? Well, I'm going to ask you to pause before you answer that question. We're talking with Bill Burns, talking about the fascinating case of Barney and Betty Hill. Uh, abducted in 1961. There's a new documentary on Netflix that will be out soon on their whole story. This documentary is produced by the production company headed by Barack and Michelle Obama. Why would they do this? Do they know something that we don't? We're going to explore that with Bill Burns in a moment. If if there's time, we'll try and take as many of your calls as we can. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Two little men in a flying saucer flew down to earth one day. Look to left and right of it, couldn't stand the sight of it, and said, let's fly away. They took a look at a Western movie, somebody heard them say. The great Ella Fitzgerald, a velvet voice, if ever there was one. We are talking with UFO researcher and New York Times bestselling author William Burns for another edition of... The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. Midnight in the desert Shooting stars across the sky This magical journey Take us on a ride Filled with the longing Searching for the truth Will we make it to tomorrow Will the sun shine on you Talking about the, in the abduction of Barney and Betty Hill which will soon be the subject of a new Netflix documentary produced by the production company headed by Barack and Michelle Obama. Well, uh, you may recall an appearance that President Obama made about a year and a half ago on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, where the question of aliens or UFOs or UAPs, whatever you want to call the broad area that we're discussing here, where that question came up. Listen to Colbert's question and listen to Obama's response. Any UFOs? Did you ask about that? Certainly asked about it. And? Can't tell you. Sorry. Okay. All right, I'll take that as a yes. (laughs) 
Because if there were none, Why you'd not? say there was none, right? <laughs> you just played your hand. I thought you were a poker player. You just 100% showed your river card. Feel, feel free to think that. I do. I do. <laughs> That's so much. There, it makes it, me happy can, to think that you won't say, tell me about. Can UFOs. I say it used to be that UFOs was the uh, and, and uh, what is it? Roswell was the biggest conspiracy. Yeah. And now that seems so tame, right? Right. The idea that right. uh, the government might have an yeah. alien spaceship. That's now the biggest, now the biggest conspiracy is people in Michigan vote. <laughs> uh, Bill Burns, what do you make of Barack Obama's comments on this subject since leaving the presidency? And what do you think that tells us about their decision? Look, they're one of the hottest production companies in the country. They have, um, you know, a massive multi-million dollar budget. They could produce documentaries about whatever subject they want and not have to worry about Netflix uh, showing them. Why would they choose to focus on the case of Barney and Betty Hill? Number of issues. One, something's up. Could it be that since the essence of the story is not the interracial marriage, but the essence of the story is a UFO abduction, are the Obamas seeding the water for UFO disclosure? That's, the, uh, that's one obvious thought. Here's the second obvious thought. Barack Obama is the product of an interracial marriage, correct? His father came from Africa. His mother was a white woman in Hawaii. He was the product of that marriage. And that defined the early part of his politics and the early part of his presidency. He wrote books about it, right? Um, the, the, um, uh, the, the, so could it be that his exploration of Betty and Barney Hill and a seemingly unrelated event, like they didn't do anything to cause this abduction. They only went on vacation and stopped to look at a light in the sky, and that's and they and that put them on the cover of Look magazine. I mean, and that eventually killed Barney Hill. Is it? Is that the aspect of the interracial marriage being so fascinating to America, or? If it's not disclosure and it's not that, is it something else? And here's the something else. We know, I mean, there is a theory that the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill and other types of abductions strap in. This is really scary. That those abductions are not alien abductions at all, but they're what are called military abductions. This has been written about, they're called My Labs, and that there are a number of writers who have said that they believe they've been abducted by some kind of extraterrestrial. And yet, in therapy, they see human beings in military uniforms. And they came to the conclusion that the military is doing these abductions to learn about human beings who might have been abducted. The other theory is that since so much of the psychological experimentation in the 1950s and the early 1960s, this has been proven. I can tell you one case that that caused a lot of deaths, um, was the result of research from the Nazi concentration camps, Josef Mengele and his compatriots, that the psychological stress testing encouraged the military to engage in this to see how human beings would react to certain kinds of stress. 
So, for example, it's an example, true story. Um, the head of Army Intelligence, this is 1953, the head of Army Intelligence G2 doped the morning coffee of the Pentagon general staff, this is in his autobiography, with LSD to see if the United States could dope the Soviet general staff with LSD and render them ineffectual. That's what happened in the Pentagon, in the United States, in 1953 mm. with LSD. So, and that came out of the concentration camps. Um, in, at Harvard, in the late 50s, um, a young man, a 17-year-old boy, was given severe, severe, by Dr. Robert Murray, a psychologist, severe psychological stress tests, severe it broke him. The Dr. Robert Murray was studying the stress tests from the concentration camps and experimented on this young boy. This young boy was called Ted Kaczynski, and oh, he became the, the Unabomber. Unabomber. Sure. Well, that is wild. You blew my mind with that one. Uh, the film, by the way, if people want to keep an eye out for it, is supposed to begin production next year. It's going to be called White Mountains. Why do you think, whatever the motivation of the uh, Obamas here, whether it's furthering the cause of um, alien abduction or whether it's uh, the fact that uh, Barack Obama may know something that uh, that we don't, and he's trying to uh, at least be on the tip of the spear of the disclosure movement, why do you think he didn't do more to further this cause in his eight years as president? Why would he wait until he's no longer the commander-in-chief and just a private citizen to use uh, that bully pulpit, which, which is considerably less prominent, to take that time to do this? That's what he told Fallon. Mm. He said, they told me not to talk about it, and I can't. So somebody was the boss of Obama who said, commander-in-chief, you can't talk about this. The question is why we can't talk about it and what it really means. And does it go to the very nature of who we are, where we came from, and who was here before us? For example, we know this is not supposition. This is not conspiracy theory. This is not anything to do with religion. We know as a fact that there was an entire civilization on this planet before ours. We know that. We know it from the Bible, right? Noah's flood. Mm -hmm. We know it from the fact that, that at one point in prehistory, the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea flowed into each other. That was the great flood. We know from all kinds of other cultures, the, the poem Gilgamesh, Native American lore, that there was a great flood that wiped away an entire civilization. Plato tells us that, right? That was the story of Atlantis. Great flood wiped away a civilization. So there was a civilization before ours. Earth has existed for 3.5 billion years. Modern, well, human beings, right, have been here maybe 200,000 years. What happened for all those millions of years. Could there have been other civilizations before humanity that were wiped away? And 
is COVID and a dying planet ending this civilization. Hmm. Is that what Obama's message ultimately is? Well, that's uh, certainly wild and uh, certainly interesting to think about. Another uh, situation that uh, is changing the way humans behave on this planet and potentially the future of human civilization is sort of the sister issues of automation and artificial intelligence. Andrew Yang, when he was running for president, he made automation and all of the jobs that uh, are going to be displaced Due to automation, he made this a uh, big a big issue. Here he was talking with Joe Rogan during his presidential campaign about automation. I spent the last seven years running an organization that I had started called Venture for America. And we helped create about 3,000 jobs in Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis, Birmingham, New Orleans, other cities around the country. And I saw that we're pouring water into a bathtub that has a giant hole ripped in the bottom. And that for every 5, 10, 50 jobs that my entrepreneurs are going to create, we're going to lose 5, 10, 50,000 jobs. It's not something that people intuitively suspect could be a real issue either. It's it's one of the ones where you kind of have to like go shake people like, hey, look at this. This is coming. There's a cliff. We're going towards this cliff. It's, it's darker still in that. So uh, when I was digging into the numbers, I found that it's not this – cliff that we're heading towards. It's actually more of a curve that we're on. Uh, What I've been telling people is that we're in the third inning now, where one of the main reasons why Donald Trump won in 2016 is that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs that were based in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, all the swing states he needed to win in the center of the country. And a lot of that was just manufacturing work. And if you go to a factory, you'll see it's just giant robot arms as far as the eye can see. So mm. it's not just that you have artificial intelligence on the horizon. It's that we've been eating away at the most common jobs in the U.S. economy uh, for almost 20 years now. And it's just now hitting a point where it's pushing more and more unskilled men in particular out of the workforce. Last week, uh, we're now seeing automation and artificial intelligence not only take the place of uh, manufacturing workers. We're seeing it take the place of jobs like bartenders. And uh, about a week or two ago, this new AI chatbot went online, which can write. And uh, professors are raising the very serious concern that this is making it indistinguishable to tell if an essay was written by a person or by artificial intelligence. There are already a lot of fears in newsrooms across the country that this could replace journalists and writers in all sorts of different fields. And uh, a lot of folks are saying this could replace a lot of uh, paralegals and even attorneys be- So, because these AI chatbots might be doing all sorts of legal work that's kind of tedious, that's currently done by attorneys. What is your take on where we stand with open AI right now and where we're going? Well, I think you're absolutely right. I'm a professor of English and a lawyer, and I am obsoleted on both professions. <laughs> I mean, we were playing with open, um, open AI GPT uh, um, uh, uh, the other week, And what was so astounding was whatever problem we gave it – I mean, this was mediocre writing. It's not – this is not a brilliance, but it's passable writing. And so since I I taught composition all last year, um, I was comparing the student compositions to the AIs. And I'm saying if only these students 
had gone on to open open AI, they would have written A papers. So college composition courses, high school composition courses, those professors are obsoleted by this because it tells you what you're doing wrong. Imagine this correcting. You write something, the AI corrects it, sends it back. Who needs a teacher? You're seeing it in black and white. Gets worse. What if all kinds of decisions, San Francisco scrapped a plan, but it was they were considering it, of having robot police who could inflict harm on human beings. Maybe they wouldn't shoot you in, with a gun, but they could deliver bombs. They could deliver gas. Sure. Right? Breaking Isaac Asimov's first law of robotics, human beings may not hurt human um, – robots may not hurt human beings. But imagine what if – what if there were a superintelligent computer – that in order to obtain a simulation of consciousness had to get human beings from all walks of life, all races, all religions, all ages, all types, all experiences to deliver their deepest thoughts, hopes, aspirations, fears, loves into that computer. What if that existed? It does. It's called TikTok. What if that computer, what if TikTok, if you look at it not from the, the user point of view, not from, oh, the Chinese, the Chinese, not from that, but looked at TikTok strictly from the computer's point of view. What if that were gaining sentience? And to do it, it needed raw human experience. That's TikTok. <laughs> that, uh, it's true. It makes you wonder where we're going. We're going to continue in a moment with uh, Bill Burns. We'll talk about AI and some uh, interesting things about where we may be heading on the planet Mars and what that might mean for the future of human understanding of that planet and any civilizations that may have once existed there. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is Spaceman by The Killers. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're talking with New York Times bestselling author William Burns. Uh, he happens to be a, a, a bestselling author many times over. Books like The Day After Roswell, still just as relevant today. Also happens to be an attorney. Also happens to be a Ph.D. Uh, you could say many things about Bill Burns. The one thing you can't say is that he is not uh, qualified to address some of the things that, uh, that we're talking about this hour. There was an article uh, a decade ago in MIT News. Headline in this article was, Are You a Martian? And it asks the question and explores, in order to detect signs of past or present life on Mars, they are looking into a strategy which would be to search for DNA or RNA. The publication The New Scientist had uh, the headline, had the st- a story that was headlined a uh, short time after that, Martian Genome. Is there DNA on the red planet? Now, whether it's the U.S. space program, whether it's private sector space travel or other governments like the UAE or China, so much of the future of space exploration has to deal with Mars. So where is this discussion of DNA coming from? Bill, where are we with exploring Mars and uh, who has first who's brought up this idea of there potentially being DNA on Mars? Well, the, the first person uh, was Seth Shostak over at SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, said that um, as the universe, as the as the solar system, not the universe, but as the solar system after it formed, Mars had water. Mars had an atmosphere, and Mars had water. Uh, Mars didn't have a nickel-iron core, so the sun's um, rays were able to blow the atmosphere away, Earth has that core, so it kept our atmosphere, it kept the electromagnetic um, envelope around the planet. But with Mars, the atmosphere was blown away. But at some point in its early history, there was water on Mars. There may still be, in fact, a couple of things that the rover has been saying, the Curiosity rover, is that uh, NASA thinks that the rover might have found a Martian lake near one of the poles. If that's the case, and we could sample that water, assuming it exists, if we could sample that water, and if there is DNA or protein or something in that water that is Earth-like DNA, that means that life on Earth probably started when chunks of Mars were blown off in the early days when asteroids were slamming into Mars and they slammed chunks of Mars off and they fell into, they fell onto the Arctic. They fell into the Arctic Ocean. And so it could well be that life on planet Earth was seeded biologically by remnants from Mars. That would mean that human beings are actually Martians and if we can send, and if we can get a sample of whatever biological material or DNA is in water on Mars, we would know for sure that humans are not native to this planet. What do you think the reaction would be like in Earth circles and in the scientific community if we were to ever find human DNA on Mars? It would be akin to if 
when we go out in the universe and we now have, we are a spacefaring nation now, a spacefaring culture. We have our two rovers that are all the way out beyond the solar system now. What if we find out, as Avi Loeb at Harvard Smithsonian has said, what if we find out that there are other life forms in the universe and they're human? What does it mean if we find humanoid life forms throughout the universe that we mm. are not just human beings on planet Earth, but we are actually the extraterrestrials? That would be wild. Uh, we've heard a great deal about the UAP disclosure movement as of late. Congress has uh, recently changed how whistleblowers within the Pentagon and within the government at large should be reporting UAPs. There uh, are some uh, – there was a report issued by the Director of National Intelligence. Apparently, this is going to be a more standard thing. What do you see as the next step in the UAP slash UFO disclosure movement? What can folks that want to know more look forward to in the near future? A conversation that was told to me by Mickey Rooney's eighth wife. You know, Mickey Rooney married eight times. His eighth wife was still alive. Her father worked for Skunk, Lockheed Skunk Works at um, Area 51 and um, also was at Roswell in the 1940s. Um, the head of Skunk Works, when he introduced himself, when he said hello to the father, Red Chamberlain was the person's name. When he said hello to Red Chamberlain at a restaurant, Red Chamberlain's daughters were there. And he said to them, your father knows more about UFOs than anybody, but the government files will never be released because the world's governments and religions would collapse. And the person who said this was the head of Lockheed Skunk Works, hmm. who developed the SR-71 and developed and helped develop Area 51 in Nevada. Wow. And I mean, that was a... And to this day, those those uh, uh, now they're not girls anymore; they're older women. Now they tell that story of that meeting with their father and the head of Lockheed Skunk Works talking about UFOs in their presence. Do you see uh, President Biden uh, making any major steps in terms of uh, of this? Obviously, he's been in Washington for almost half a century. I would think that uh, even prior to being president, there's a good chance, given his work on the Foreign Relations Committee and his work as vice president, he was probably privy to a lot of information that uh, that the rank-and-file American wouldn't be privy, privy to. Over the next two years, do you see him being the tip of the iceberg on any of this stuff? Yes, beca- yes because he's no longer in the government. Mm-hmm. See, he's taking the heat off Joe Biden. Joe Biden's best friend in the Senate— was Harry Reid. Harry Reid was the senator in whose district was Area 51. Harry Reid knew more than anyone. And remember, remember we saw those TikTok UFOs right. um, T- the off TikTok. San Diego? The TikTok. Who was yeah. president? During the release of of those videos. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I I did, uh, maybe I misspoke, but I meant to say President Biden. Do you see Biden being, uh, moving the ball forward on UAP? He's trying to find a way. Uh huh. I would guess that Biden is trying to find a way. Even if Biden came in saying, you know, Hillary was right, 
um, uh, uh, Andrew Yang is right. We, 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 we have to prepare for what's coming. <clears throat> he needed cover. Barack Obama is that cover. Interesting. Uh, well, that is uh, that's certainly a, a fascinating, fascinating uh, thought. A, an incredible conversation, Bill. It's always a delight whenever we uh, whenever we speak. Let me ask you the question that I'm always uh, that I'm always uh, confronted with whenever we speak. If people are interested in furthering their understanding of this subject, which is the best of your books that they should start with? Do you recommend The Day After Roswell? Do you recommend Day UFOs? After Roswell, and- Day After Roswell, certainly. But another book is A History of the United States Presidency Told in Terms of UFOs. And that book is at Skyhorse. It's called UFOs and the White House. And it tells the very first story of a UFO encounter at Valley Forge with George Washington. And you'd say, Bill, how do you know that you weren't alive at Valley Forge? George Washington wrote about it in his journal. That was the first UFO encounter at Valley Forge with President George Washington. It goes all the way, all the way to this, to our current president, number 46. And it is all the ways UFOs interfered with and changed American policy, including Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the development of the atomic bomb. Bill, we're going to have to end it there. I could talk with you for hours. It's always a treat. Uh, appreciate it very much. Hope you have a great new year. We'll look forward to chatting quite a bit in uh, 2023. And happy new year to you. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of my conversation with Bill Burns, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You can comment on anything else we've covered as well or anything else you might have questions about. Uh, Those of you that we're holding for a while, we'll get to you first. In the meantime, your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. What is your New Year's Eve telecast of choice? Right? I know, um, depending on your interest, people watch different things. I remember Regis did a, a New Year's Eve telecast a couple of years. I, I've always preferred the live radio telecast of New Year's Eve. I don't know what we have scheduled, but um, I used to really enjoy uh, you know, being a part of the production of a lot of these New Year's Eve radio specials. Joe Franklin, when he had his restaurant in Times Square, used to do these great New Year's Eve broadcasts, a live radio show from the restaurant, which was at the heart of Times Square, right on 45th and 8th. And uh, I know a lot of people really love Dick Clark. And then once uh, Ryan Seacrest took over, he kind of 
adopted that uh, that uh, Dick Clark tradition. A lot of folks uh, really, if you're younger, I mean, well, <laughs> not so much anymore. But when I uh, was growing up, one of the big things, if you were young and hip, which I was not and never have been, was to watch MTV on uh, New Year's Eve. You, they'd do the countdown to the biggest videos of the year. They'd have a couple of the MTV VJs out there in Times Square, and uh, they would count down, and right around midnight, they would do the countdown at midnight, but they would play the number one video of the year. It was exciting. Now, I I, I don't really watch many of these New Year's Eve telecasts. I like the uh, Twilight Zone marathon, which is on on uh, on New Year's Eve. But a lot of people are into it, and a lot of people enjoy instead of the Dick Clark New Year Rocket New Year's Rock and Eve. A lot of people enjoy the CNN telecast. Now CNN has done very well ratings wise in terms of uh, getting people to watch. Uh, there they've had uh, Kathy Griffin in years past. They've had Anderson Cooper. And one of the kind of the best duos in recent years that CNN has had has been Andy Cohen and Anderson Cooper. And I'm not sure when this was from. I think it was from last year. But Andy Cohen and Anderson Cooper are on air. And I like seeing clips of this New Year's telecast because it's always fun to see anybody, but especially celebrities, drinking on air. Really fun. It's, it adds an element of unpredictability, and that's what a big part of the CNN broadcast does. Remember, I don't know if they do this anymore, but when Kathy Lee and Hoda used to host the fourth hour of today, they were getting plastered in the middle of the day, and I, I was never really home to watch that in the middle of the day. But I always said I would watch that. I want to see a talk show where everyone's getting drunk. I remember uh, they did a week, at least a day, but I think it was a week. Um, of the Howard Stern show about 15, 16 years ago where they were all in Las Vegas and they'd get drunk in Las Vegas. There was one broadcaster who, to highlight the dangers of drinking and driving, would drink throughout his whole New Year's Eve show. I confess, I really like that idea as basically just an excuse to get drunk on air. But I I say so many foolish things and so many stupid things stone cold sober I am just terrified that I would say something that is potentially career-ending or FCC license-threatening. Here is Andy Andy Cohen and Anderson Cooper on CNN last year sharing a shot of tequila to Betty White. We're going to raise our first shot of tequila in honor of Betty White. Cheers. There you go. There you go. Number one. So this drinking on CNN on New Year's Eve has become a big part of their broadcast. Last year you had um, – and it's it strays into tipsy territory. It strays into sloppy territory. And to be honest, it's pretty funny. You had Don Lemon get his ear pierced in a bar in New Orleans. You had last year Andy Cohen go on a drunken rant, what can only be described as a drunken rant, complaining about former mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio. But now there's a new boss in town over at CNN. The new CNN president, Chris Licht, who I actually used to know, he used to work here. He used to produce the um, 
the uh, Joe and Mika show when they had a radio show here. I never really, you, you know, got to know him. We didn't work the same shifts or anything, but he struck me as a nice enough guy, a smart enough guy. But he's the new president of CNN, believe it or not. And the, he has chosen to take the ratings hits in order to reposition the network to audiences as more serious. This is a whole part of his plan of rebranding CNN as a more serious network, not comprised of commentators, but comprised of news and journalists. So this year, Chris Licht said in an internal meeting that Anderson Cooper and Andy Cohen will be permitted to imbibe, prompting Anderson Cooper to tell the network leadership that he's concerned at the perception that only the two white hosts are permitted to drink. So Chris Licht walks that rule back. One aide said, quote, Chris made an offhand remark in a town hall about drinking during the New Year's Eve program. Shortly after, he proactively reached out to Anderson Cooper to clarify that his comments were meant as a joke and that he preferred no drinking on air at all. In any event, Don Lemon, who will likely be dispatched to New Orleans again, was not pleased about the sober state of things, according to the uh, publication Semaphore. And not everyone is planning on letting this new regime spoil the fun. On his show after this news was announced, Andy Cohen said that since the correspondents will not be drinking this year, he will, quote, be partying even harder on their behalf. And Semaphore asked Licht about the change at a recent holiday party where he maintained that it was important for the network's anchors to be perceived as credible on air, not sloppy. He added that he will be in the control room on New Year's Eve and he will have a celebratory drink. I am curious where you come down on this. I think it's kind of fun on once a year seeing uh, TV anchors get drunk. I do. I think it's kind of fun. I think it's uh, we- uh, interesting to see the weird things they might come up with. I thought that uh, drunken rant from Andy Cohen last year bashing de Blasio, I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was great television. You know why I really don't watch television much? I mean, I'll watch television and then I'll, I'll watch the Mets. I'll watch reruns of uh, Star Trek. I'll watch, uh, you know, movies that happen to be on television. But I really don't enjoy watching cable news or really news coverage at all on television is because it's all so safe. It's all so unpredictable. It's all so boring. The greatest moment of the Academy Awards was up until last year, or this year, up until this year, was when they read the wrong movie as the Best Picture winner. That was great. You watch these live events just hoping something will go wrong to inject one sliver of unpredictability. Everything's on a teleprompter. Uh, the talk show host on a, any show, it could be a comedy show or a news show, they, they have scripted out, how are you? The guest responds on the teleprompter, good. This is just crazy. And that element of alcohol on New Year's Eve, I thought was a lot of fun. That being said, I kind of get where Chris Licht is coming from on this. It makes sense to me if you want to be viewed as a serious journalistic endeavor Maybe you shouldn't have the face of your network, even though they did well ratings-wise uh, with these drunken New Year's Eve broadcasts. Maybe you shouldn't have the face of your network getting plastered 
and then the next day expect to be taken seriously when you're talking about Afghanistan or taxes or the omnibus spending bill. Where do you come down on this? Because I am conflicted. I think it's probably the smart decision on Licht's part. But as somebody that roots for unpredictability and as somebody that roots for, you know, anchors saying weird things, I'm a little disappointed in this. That's where I come down. I'm a bit ambivalent. 800-848-9222. A sober CNN and a dry New Year's Eve telecast on CNN. 1-800-848-9222. Does this create an opening for one of the other networks to have drunken news news anchors? Maybe this will be what our coverage of New Year's Eve will be. You know, who knows? Noam Layden and Deb Valentine getting sloshed late in the evening. Who knows? Um, 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on anything else we've covered, you're certainly welcome to. A lot of you have been patiently holding him to get to as many of you as we can. Uh, John, for instance, is in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. Hey. Um, so I, I just wanted to say that um, the only UFO guy I can listen to is uh, you've heard of uh, Dr. Stephen Greer, right? Yes. Yes, I have. He's the only one that has any paperwork, any evidence of anything he talks about. This guy you just had on tells really good stories, but I don't think they're believable. Did you ever watch Unacknowledged? Um, uh, no, I don't think I did see that. Th- that's the Stephen Greer documentary, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah I, ha- I haven't seen it yet. It's it's on my list. It'll blow your mind. And yeah, I'm looking really forward like, to seeing it. I'm looking forward to seeing I really it. I like how you had that guy on um, yeah, I. Me too. Last me night too. Or the other night, last night or the other night, he uh, he called Bob Lazar fake, and I believed the Bob Lazar story this whole time until I heard that guy talk. What the fella? The fella that I had on that criticized Lazar. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot his name, but he blew my mind. If Bob Lazar had anything, any element one fifteen, he should have provided it by now. Yeah, I thought that was a, I thought that was a fair point. Uh, and uh, that, I thought that was an interesting uh, I, th- I thought that was an interesting interview for that oh, very and, reason. Uh, and Frank, just one more thing. And that was uh, Douglas an, Dean Johnson was that guest's name. Oh, uh, right. And I had an epiphany uh, while you were talking about AI. I realized if we could upload our consciousness, then we would live forever. Well, I think uh, that's what Shatner is planning on doing. I mean, um, he's plan. It's a little. It's not. He won't be conscious. But the idea is he's going to be recording a whole bunch of responses on video and in audio if he hasn't already. And the idea is he'll be able to answer your question uh, on anything that you want to ask him about. And uh, I think no. we we spoke about it recently when he was on the show. But I mean, if you could literally upload your brain. Right. I mean, that's the direction we're going. I mean, if you've seen the film Her, um, that is uh, that is a fundamental part of the later plot of uh, of the film. So, uh, look, there's a lot of Star Trek episodes that have holograms that have their consciousness uh, uploaded to some sort of digital AI uh, platform. Uh, But thanks for the call, John. Joel is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, Joel. Yes, hi, Frank. Thank you for the show. Uh, first time caller. Ah, welcome aboard. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Yes, I just, I don't know the president of, the new president of CNN, and I I imagine it's not about uh, so much drinking on air than rebranding the entire uh, company to seem more serious. 
Uh, normally, there wouldn't be a problem, but their ratings are so bad that he has to do something drastic. That's my guess. Well, I think you're right, uh, but I think that this is one of the few things that CNN does that actually gets pretty high ratings in comparison to the other cable news networks. So I, I think they're taking the one thing that um, you know that they do well with in terms of attracting eyeballs, and they're changing it. Well, it makes sense. It's just that uh, you know he wants to come across more serious. That's that's my take. I don't know. All right. Well, thank you very much, Joel. Steve is on the Upper West Side. Hello, Steve. Oh, cool. Hello, hi, how you doing? Great show once again. Oh, thanks. Um, two great guests. Two great guests. Um, totally different, but very necessary. Thank you. Um, first, I was going to say that the 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 marathon that I like to watch, besides the 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 one that you mentioned, um, Twilight Zone, is the Honeymooners. Also, have oh, me their, too. Uh, me too. You're right. It's oh, great. That. Incredible. I love it. My question was, um, I hear the word systematic racism a lot, and I'm not sure exactly what it means. So I was going to see if you can, you know, give me a definition that I could relate to and maybe have another question or just respond to that. Well, look, systemic racism or institutional racism, they say it's a form of racism that's embedded into society or embedded into the laws and regulations of a society or an organization. Sometimes, like, for instance, there was uh, there were reports about redlining for years, and they said uh, that um, the different zoning laws in certain suburbs, uh, certain places on Long Island, for instance, that that was designed, it didn't say in the zoning law, don't sell uh, to black people, but they say that the various income requirements required to get uh, loans or to live in certain places, that that was a form of systemic racism. Even though it wasn't race-based, they say that the byproduct of it had a uh, had a deleterious effect on minorities. I'm not a big believer, in all honesty, in many different aspects of systemic racism. But it's easy for me to say, sitting here enjoying my white privilege. So, okay, so that means that a lot of people don't think that systematic race, the systematic um, racism does exist. So when you just had a guest on there earlier, and you also mentioned how up until 19, like in 1961, um, whites and blacks or mixed races were not allowed. It was illegal for them to marry. That was just, what, 60 years, 50 years ago? Right, like right, that. exactly. Would that fall? I mean, that's going beyond institutes. That's something that's so serious in the fabric of our yeah, well, I think I think that just one thing. Yeah, I think that is absolutely institutional racism. I wouldn't even put the word institutional in there. I would just say it's racism, right? I think but the 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 America in my view anyway, the America of 2022 I think is a very different place than the America of 1961. But no, I don't think anyone's going to argue that. You can't you can't argue that but me. I'm 52 years old, I think my generation is the first generation that was able to have white kids and black kids sit in a classroom without being escorted to the, with the police. This is a, one of the, this one, this is the greatest country in the world. All right. Where we are today, we can't measure ourselves 50 years ago, a hundred years ago, but a lot of these elements still 
exist. And this, like, the fumes from this stench still exist in people. Some people haven't changed. But to say that it doesn't exist, I want to know, does it matter? How can we change it? How can we talk about and discuss it and completely maybe just void it out? But Well, I, look, I think those are all important questions, right? And I, I think okay. part of it is... I think part of it is economic, and I think part of it is political, right? I think um, – and look, I don't want to make this too political. I was hoping to have a, a drunken New Year's Eve discussion. But I think that, um, I think that, for instance, when you see a situation where a lot of uh, public schools that serve predominantly black communities – are uh, not up to par with a lot of the public schools that serve predominantly white communities. And the people that realize this more than anybody are the black parents who have to send their kids to public schools that in some cases are failing, in some cases are even unsafe. And because of that, they uh, are overwhelmingly, according to polls of black public school um, you know, uh, parents, they would love to have the option to send their children to another another type of school, whether it's a charter school or whether it's using a school voucher to send them even to a private school. And yet the black community still votes overwhelmingly for the Democratic Party. It has to ma- it makes you wonder, um, are our black voters, our black voters kind of their own worst enemy in furthering some of the causes of institutional racism. Okay. I'm not going to answer that. I agree with you. I think it's more like 95%. It's way too much. I don't understand it, but that's like you said, I don't want to go into politics. I want to stay on your, this well, subject that you're talking on. Yeah. And, um, and I'll tell you, Steve, are you black? They're, they're, are you because bl- they're program? Yes. Yes. I'm a yeah. black, I'm African American and I usually vote Republican. The problem that I have with the Republicans, one problem I have with Republicans is that they let the Democrats take over the race issue, and they use it as a weapon. And without that race issue, what can the doc, the, the Democrats actually stand well, on? Well, uh, I, uh, I, I'm not going to give uh... – you know, political advice to how what what the Democrats are doing, but I do think there are some Republicans. Uh, Tim Scott, who happens to be black, comes to mind. That's pushed for these opportunity zones uh, to uh, help a lot of low income areas that uh, do have a lot of minority residents in them. I think there are some Republicans that are willing to have uh, conversations on race. And I think that's part of the reason why you've seen so many Republicans try to recruit uh, candidates of color uh, to run for a lot of prominent offices over the over the recent years, because I think in some cases it's easier to have uh, somebody that's a. you know, a black candidate for governor or U.S. Senate make some of those same arguments than someone that uh, that is white making those same arguments to communities of color. But uh, I think part of the reason, and this is the last the last comment I'll make about this is, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at how Hispanics vote, Hispanics vote mostly Democrat, but it's not overwhelmingly Democrat. And you see, a lot of Hispanic constituencies have had no problem. Voting for Republicans or even independents in some cases. So what that has done is that has made the Hispanic community such a potent voting block um, and all sorts of different aspects of the mm-hmm. Hispanic community, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans and so forth. And what you now see 
especially in states like Florida, but elsewhere as well, including in New York, you see Republicans, Democrats, and to, whenever there's a major third-party candidate, which is rare, going out of their way to offer a better deal exactly. to the Hispanic exactly. constituents. And I do wonder if rather than vote um, upwards of 90% for one political party, the black community would say to all the politicians, hey, you're not going to be able to well, take our vote for granted anymore. You're going to have to come and earn our vote the way the Hispanic community has done. I really think that that would go a long way towards furthering the political clout of the black community. Amen. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> hey, Steve, we'll thanks for the call. That. Happy New Year. You too. Thank you. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. Leo is on the Upper West Side. He has been waiting patiently. Hello there, Leo. Good morning, Frank. I have a comment to your elf on the shelf. Uh, In the Western Europe, uh, it's celebrated on uh, December 5th or 6th, some countries 5th, some 6th, St. Nicholas, which is the same as uh, Santa Claus. And uh, the kids are told that actually Santa Claus comes on December 5th and is watching until December 24th the Christmas Eve, mm-hmm. if he's going to give them gifts and how many gifts he's going to give them. It's similar idea as this elf on the shelf. And in Czechoslovakia and northern Germany, the Saxony, the Saxons, there's on uh, December 5th coming three figures dressed, Santa Claus, angel, and devil. The devil has always chain and big back. And the kids are scared that the, 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 the devil is going to take them in the back. Angel always is holding him kind of back. It's, it's to scare the kids. And the Santa tells them on the de- December 6th that he's going to watch them until Christmas. And if they're good, he's going to come with the gifts. If not, the devil is going to come and put them in the back and take them to the hell. Leo. That's the story. uh, Leo, first of all, Happy New Year, and uh, thank you for calling. I I explained some of that over the, um, you know, on Friday when we went into the history of St. Nicholas as a gift giver. Uh, And I mentioned this again in the first hour of the program. Santa, uh, Santa or the various names that the St. Nicholas gift giver has had throughout history over the years has traditionally been assisted by people that were very evil. And the way a lot of times it would work, whether it was Krampus or some of the other folks that I was talking about on Friday, is Santa Claus or Father Christmas or whatever you want to call it, he would give gifts to the good children, and then Krampus or one of these other uh, one of these other sort of evilish figures, some of which did look very much like the devil, they would then be responsible for not only assisting Santa in his work, but for disciplining the bad children. So there's a long history of this. All right, 800-848-9222. Hey, we had a great caller in the first hour, and I said I would address his question. I will do that when we come back. Also happy to take your calls on uh, any of the issues that we've been discussing. 800-848-9222. Three open lines if you want to jump on board. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Rapture by Blondie. I love this song. Big fan of Blondie in general. And uh, this song specifically. 800-848-9222. And if you listen to the lyrics, there is sort of a UFO element to this song. And uh, if you listen to or if you watch the music video, uh, that becomes clearer and clearer. And I think a lot of the science fiction imagery is uh, does deal with um, verses about a man from Mars. So it seems apropos on a day that we're talking with uh, Bill Burns about some of these subjects. All right. Uh, Let me say hello very quickly to Ken in Brooklyn. Hello, Ken. Yeah. Hey, how you doing? Good. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk to you about the UAP hearings. You know about them, right? The yes, reports we, that were supposed to be coming out. Right. We've covered them uh, extensively, Ken. Yeah. Do you think they're going to have it out by the end of the year? Because they keep pushing it back. Um, what, I'm, what a lot of people are saying, what I've said, they've found, they've been able to explain a lot of these away as balloons or drones. But there's still always a, a number of them which they said they have no explanation for them. Okay? And what people have been saying they they don't want they said we can't say that they're alien which they're right but what they're saying is they they don't have any other explanation for it they've already eliminated that they're not from any earthly source it's not a balloon a bird a bug it's not from any classified u.s program or any other foreign country so people have to ask common sense questions they're basically telling you we can't tell you that it's alien because we really don't know that it's alien. it hasn't landed and said we're aliens but what else could it be if we've eliminated all the other earthly sources? That's how you have to look at this when they're saying we don't know what these other sets of objects are that we've eliminated all the other stuff from. That's what people, when they when the reports come out, there's always a set of we just don't know what these other objects are. They're basically telling you they're alien, but we can't say they're alien because... Right. Well, again, it's not – look, we don't know what they are, right? But we know these objects exist. We, we've, we've seen the videos. The question are – we've seen all the videos. So to your point, and I think it's a good one, and uh, I, you know, I've raised it with other you know, scholars like Bill Burns previously, not today, but previously. Right. Uh, to your point, look, there are certain, certain sightings that can be explained away as uh, weather balloons, as weather phenomenon, as uh, as aircraft, as civilian aircraft. But if you look at the videos of these um, mil- these naval pilots who are experienced pilots chasing after videos, if you uh, ch- chasing after these tic tac objects, you look at other videos of them describing they don't understand what they're seeing on the radar screen the question is what are they right so if if they're um you know so there's all sorts of possibilities they could be something from our own government our government denies that that's that's the case they could be something from a foreign government so far all the intelligence that we have from foreign governments like china and russia indicate that they don't have that kind of capability right now or or it could be something else now if it's something else to me the fundamental question is what are they what are they? Now, uh, I'm not sitting here saying that it's Martians or Venusians or some someone else. Maybe it's uh, some people have speculated and we've spoken with some experts who have this theory that it's time travelers from the future. Okay, other, but- other people say it's uh, people from another planet. Other people say it's people from another dimension. Okay. But to me, the question 
that uh, that I just posed, which is what are they, uh, is such a better question than the question that so often seems to get asked, which is are they? But, Frank, the point is once you've eliminated that it's from no earthly source, like you said, it's not a bug, a plane, which – the government, the, the, the military of Pentagon is telling you, they'll set that we're saying we don't know what it is because we've already eliminated all these other possibilities. You're right. That means you, you can't say it's alien, which is what they've also said, because technically they, they're saying we can't say whatever this is. We don't really, the only thing we can tell you is we don't know, which is what they're saying. But that in itself is historic. They're basically telling you Ken, whatever this you. is. Where Ken, they, I, I agree with you. I think it is pretty groundbreaking. Ken, it is. Th- Ken, thank you for the call. I appreciate you listening. Happy New Year. I do want to try and get to some other people as well. Hey, I see Paul from White Plains on the line. Paul called in earlier. He was asking about the Racket Report. Um, The Racket Report is a podcast that I host. You can go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and just scroll down to the Racket Report. Or you can search on any podcast app, iTunes or Google Podcasts, whatever, and just search the Racket Report and hit the subscribe button. Uh, There's going to be a brand new edition of the podcast out tomorrow, which uh, I'm pretty pretty excited about. I'm going to link to it on Facebook as well at facebook.com slash MorenoFan. And um, the the episode of the podcast that's out now, I interview a cooperator by the name of Anthony Ruggiano. Now, I've seen Ruggiano testify twice in uh, the trial of Bobby Glasses, Bobby Glasses Vernacci, and in uh, the uh, the Vincent Asaro trial. And I thought he was a very credible witness in both trials. Now, just so you know where I'm coming from, I don't generally view cooperators as credible people. But to me, and this is one of the issues I deal with in the forthcoming podcast, to me there's a big difference between a cooperator like John A. Light who tells lie after lie after lie and gets a get-out-of-jail-free card for a lifetime of their crimes and someone who seems to be telling the truth. I still think there's a moral and an ethical debate about whether it's appropriate to let someone who's committed crimes their whole life go free just because they're willing to rat on their criminal cohorts. This is one of the issues that I explored with Anthony Ruggiano. Now, understand where Ruggiano's coming from. His father was a Gambino crime family hitman, pretty prominent gangster by the name of Fat Andy. He himself was never straightened out, but he was uh, a very prominent Gambino crime family associate, killed people, including his own brother-in-law. He is now free because of his decision to cooperate. So we talked a little bit about what makes a good cooperator. Did you find that you were more comfortable in your fifth or your sixth trial than at your first, did you find that you became a better witness the more times that you did it? Honestly, no. Um, it's like, it's hard. It's like, it's tunnel vision. Um, no, I, I think, um, I, I, I think I felt the same throughout all the trials from the first one to the sixth one. I testified at six altogether. You know, it's, uh, it's strange because once, um, once, you sit in that seat and you start to testify. It's even though there's people in the courtroom, a jury and spectators, you're so zoned in on the person that's in front of you asking you questions. You sort of zone everything else out. And, and it's just you and the person that's 
questioning you, especially when you're getting cross-examined, you know, because then they're really coming at you and try to, you know, cross you up and, you know, catch you in lies if you're not being honest. And I think I came across um, the way I did and I, and because I was honest. I mean, I, I, I never really, I never made anything up. Um, you know, whenever, whatever question they asked me, I gave an honest answer to the best of my recollection. And no, I, I felt the same way throughout all the shows. I think that's why I, 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 they claimed I was a good witness. So I thought it was an interesting response, and I thought overall it was a very interesting interview, and you could hear the whole thing, again, just by searching the Racket Report on any podcast app or going to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. One listener told me that uh, I think the highest rating that you can get on iTunes from listeners is a 5, and we're currently at a 49 for the Racket Report. So if you want to help us out and you're on iTunes, uh, check out that uh, that podcast, The Racket Report, and give us a five-star review. So Paul's question, as I understand it, was, hey, look, you know, Curtis would go all over town talking about this kind of material. And uh, Paul wondered if Curtis was going to get hurt somehow. And Curtis did. Uh, if you don't know the story of Curtis Slewa, and I think Curtis is going to be here in this slot tomorrow. We'll see. Um, If you don't know the history of Curtis Sliwa, in April of 1992, he was beaten with baseball bats. And uh, he was severely injured, severely injured. And a lot of the people uh, that uh, have knowledge of this incident say that um, the people that beat him with uh, baseball bats were uh, John Ruggiero, Stephen Kaplan, and uh, a fellow by the name of... um, McDonald name escapes me because it's been a while since I covered this incident or uh, commented on it. But um, and then that was April of 1992. Then come June of 1992, Curtis continues with his anti mob rants and he gets shot in June of 1992. So, uh, Paul's question was, do you ever wonder about your own safety? And Curtis used to tell me privately that that's part of the reason that you don't hear guys like Imus, Howard Stern, uh, Bob Grant back in the day ever talking about the mob because they're afraid. And the answer is uh, the answer is no. I don't worry about my own safety for four reasons. One, you can't really get uh, you can't really get paralyzed by fear. I don't spend a lot of time thinking what is the worst possible thing that can happen to me today and le- and let it stop me from living my life that's number 1 number 2 uh one of the one of the i ask two questions to every mob guest that's on the racket report and this includes not only gangsters but lawyers prosecutors defense attorneys uh police officers judges journalists i ask two questions one is of all the mob movies that have been made over the years, what's the most realistic? And you get a variety of interesting responses. The other one is, what is the mob like today? And overwhelmingly, the overwhelming uh, majority of folks that I have uh, spoken to, they all say that uh, essentially the mob is, if not non-existent, it's a shell of its former self. And it really is not doesn't have the kind of influence that um, that it once did. So I don't worry about that. The third reason is unlike Curtis, who in his commentary goes after prominent 
members of La Cosa Nostra, most of my criticism is leveled at um, people like John Adelite, people that are lying, people like uh, Dino Calabro, people that are lying to get out of their crimes. Curtis and I criticize two very different people. But lastly, uh, if you listen to these podcasts, I do these as straight I, you know, I'll squeeze in some commentary once in a while, but it's straight kind of uh, journalism. It's a really compelling interviews with these people where I just ask people to tell me their story and give me their opinion. Um, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of questions about why Curtis was kidnapped and assaulted in June of 1992, right? But the people that I've spoken to that have some knowledge of this. It wasn't because Curtis was going on the radio on a regular basis doing a sane and sober rehash of the day's events. Curtis would go on the radio and be as insulting as possible in very personal terms to uh, family members of, um, you know, people that were involved in organized crime. There was always kind of an understanding that you would never, if you were in, involved in the underworld, ever assault a police officer. You would never kill a police officer. And there was an understanding that you would never go after a journalist. And that is, by and large, something that uh, the mob has adhered to, right? But Curtis, they made an exception because he made it such a personal thing, going after the kids, going after the grandkids. And I think a lot of people that were involved in La Cosa Nostra, they felt that that was a bridge too far. They felt that that was kind of Curtis going out of his way to insult and antagonize innocent people. Nobody would ever get upset about Curtis saying something about John Gotti. But once you go in very personal terms, I've heard from people that's kind of what uh, that's kind of what did him in in that respect. And I don't do that. I would never go out of my way to insult anybody but especially somebody that had nothing to do with committing these crimes. So um, I hope that uh, I hope that provides some kind. And you know what? Honestly, aside from the last four minutes, I don't really talk about the mob that much on the radio. I save that for the Racket Report podcast. Really, the extent of the conversations that I have about the mob on the radio is just encouraging people to listen to the Racket Report because that's where we really delve into that. Uh, Paul is uh, in White Plains. He has returned. Does that, uh, does that basically, does that kind of summarize where I am? You you clarified everything great. I think John Jr. said uh, that the deciding factor was he was making fun of his father too much. And so it did become personal. You know, it's one thing when... uh, Well, and by the way, and I, and I know, and I know John Jr. And both John and Curtis, you know, were at my wedding when I got married three years ago. John has, John Jr. has, has never said that publicly or, or to me. Uh, Oh, really? Okay. So I, I was wrong. Okay. Uh, But you know what, if that was my father, I would be angry too. Curtis took everything too personal, too much shtick. If he's if Curtis has the shtick with you, that's one thing. But you know, to go on public fifty thousand watts of uh, whatever, as Curtis says, and publicly condemn me over and over and over, you're asking for it. You know, I want I want you to forget. Uh, you forgot one name, uh, 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 Bull Gravano. 
he murdered 19 people, went to a witness protection program in Arizona. He dropped a dime on everybody, and he continued to deal, I don't know what he's dealing, crystal meth or speed? That's a disgrace. As uh, Curtis would say, a disgrazia. Well, uh, so, uh, yeah, first of all, a couple of quick things. One, it it was ecstasy, not that that's better, but it was ecstasy uh, that he ran this drug trafficking ring. Two, um, uh, it's he's admitted to killing 19 people. Well, there's substantial evidence to suggest that he participated in many more murders than that. Three, wow. uh, when you say he dropped a dime on any everybody, that's not exactly true. By um, his daughter's own admission and by the admission of other cooperators like Joey D'Angelo, Gravano did not tell the truth, and he went out of his way on the stand to protect certain members of his own crew. So it was not as if Gravano had this come-to-Jesus moment where he decided, I'm going to tell the truth. He chose to selectively lie and target certain criminal defendants. Uh, But I agree, and I, you know, I really did one of, and I, I have never been rude with anybody that I've ever interviewed, but I did one of the most confrontational interviews that I've done on the racket report with the prosecutor that gave Gravano that sweetheart deal, John Gleason. And I did, if you listen to the racket report, the uh, one of the episodes that I did was he then became a federal judge. And I think I challenged him appropriately about how you could give a man that committed 19 murders a get out of jail free card and let him serve less than two and a half years in prison. And I found his response completely inadequate uh but you could listen to it for yourself and judge for yourself you know i have a i just have one quick question sure jimmy breslin was married to a woman called that the gang that couldn't shoot straight he said the uh, italians never had a uh, knights of columbus and that's why they embraced you know the cosa nostra and mafiosi do you think it gives italians a bad name mario puzo was asked why are these godfather uh, books and movies so popular, he said, because it's easy. You pick up a gun and you're rich overnight. I can't help but think, though, you know, when all the hoopla over the Sopranos and the Italian-American whatever society said this is a disgrace. But you know what? Everyone, they went ahead with the series anyway. They even had a lottery ticket in New York, the Bada Bing lottery. It does, don't you think it gives Italian-Americans a bad name? 100%. 100%. And I think the – and that's also but one of the things – promoting it by, by – by, you know, I don't know. It just uh, – Well, no. I want, you to listen, there, but... I want you to listen to the racket report. We tell okay. the brutal okay. truth about all this stuff. And I don't think by highlighting the, uh, the crimes and misdeeds of either gangsters or cooperators that we're creating a glamorous lifestyle. However, in the episode that's going to be posted tomorrow – uh, where I speak with uh, the uh, a former uh, associate of the Gallo crew, which is the crew that the gang that couldn't shoot straight is based on. I ask him that very question, and I think his response is is crazy. I'll be honest with you. But listen to the podcast. I got to run, Paul. Thank you uh, very much for such a thoughtful call. Uh, 800-848-9222. But yeah, I think uh, there is absolutely, if, you know, just like the criminal element of any ethnicity gives uh, folks that are honest and hardworking and a part of that ethnicity a bad name. Uh, But I don't really view The Godfather, for instance, as a mafia story. I view it as a story about a family that is in a business that happens to be crime. I don't – I mean, that's maybe a distinction without a difference, but uh, 
That's my view of the Godfather. All right, 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your calls in just a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. tell you, um, every time I see Tulsi Gabbard on television or hear her on radio, my fondness for her and my esteem for her grows. I had hoped to make this program the first show that was totally Santos free. Because I'll be honest, I feel like we've kind of reached peak Santos. I feel like maybe as of about 12 hours ago... Everything about the Santos situation that could be said has been said. Remember when I felt we got there on the Kanye West dinner, we reached a point where, okay, all right, now it's all been said. Um, I feel like we were there on Santos about 12 hours ago. And then he goes on the Tucker Carlson show last night on the Fox News channel, and um, he is sitting down for an interview. Now, Fox is a conservative network. And he's sitting down for an interview with Tulsi Gabbard, who was sitting in for uh, Tucker Carlson. And I got to tell you, this whole interview was six and a half minutes. She was terrific. She was not rude, but she did not give this guy who now, I think by his own admission, is a total liar. She didn't give him a break and she didn't let him squirrel out of the interview by saying, what about, what about, what about Biden? What about, what about, what about Hunter? What about, what about, what about uh, X, Y, Z? What about Dick Blumenthal? She didn't let him get away with that. I gave him a lot of credit for that. And I wonder how many other Fox News hosts would have done the same thing. Here's a portion of Tulsi Gabbard's uh, interview with uh, George Santos last night. What does the word integrity mean to you? Well, Tulsi, thank you for having me. You know, um, to to answer your question, integrity is very important. And like I I said to the New York Post, embellishing what what does it mean, though? What does it mean? Because the the meaning of the word actually matters in practice. Of course, it it means to, to carry yourself in an honorable way. And I made a mistake. And I think humans are flawed, and we all make mistakes, Tulsi. 
Um, I think we can all look at ourselves in the mirror and admit that once in our life we made a mistake. I'm having to admit this in national television for the whole country to see, and I have the courage to do so because I believe that in order to move past this and move forward and be an effective member of Congress, I have to face my mistakes, and I'm facing them. Um, the reality is, is that I remain committed to doing everything I set forward in my campaign. I'm not a fraud. I'm not a fake. I, I, I didn't materialize from thin air. I worked damn hard to get where I got my entire life. Life wasn't easy. It didn't start off easy. As I've said it many, many times, I come from abject poverty. I made some mistakes. Now, she then goes on. It's you got to watch this whole six and a half minute interview. I just linked to it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. And she says to him at one of the at one point, if I were one of those people in New York's third district right now that um, now that the election is over and I'm finding out all these lies that you've told, not just one little lie or one little embellishment. These are blatant lies. My question is, this is her words. Do you have no shame? And she repeats, do you have no shame? And the people who are now you're asking to trust you to go and be their voice for them, their families and their kids in Washington. I'll tell you, I can't remember the last time I saw on television such a stark contrast between two people on simultaneously, one who was so dishonest and one who was so honest. It was really great, and I encourage you, watch the whole thing. Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cats paid or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Let me uh, apologize to you for what is about to come because I don't know how, I don't know when, but at some point uh, throughout the course of this hour, there will be uh, some disastrous um, technical error that causes us to be knocked off air or have dead air or. Have uh, the affiliates not get fed the show or some or have, uh, you know, some callers speaking a foreign language or something because um, the things have gone far, far too well over the course of the last three days with uh, Alex Barnard at the controls uh, sitting in for Matt Blaze. And now that I've said that and acknowledged that for the second day in a row Something horrible is just bound to happen. So just prepare yes, yourself. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> so just prepare yourself for that. But in all seriousness, Alex, I must uh, I must commend you. Not a formal commendation, so don't get too excited. But I must commend you for a uh, a very very stellar job over the last few days. Thanks, Frank. I'm you know I'm working on getting smoother. That's all you can ask for, right? Absolutely, absolutely. All right. Um, so that's that. All right. Couple of things. I read this article. I, for those of you that heard the um, 
uh, my appearance on the uh, Sid and Friends in the morning show yesterday. I was talking about this with Curtis Lewa. There's this news outlet, which I actually really like. It's called The City. It's a nonprofit news outlet, and uh, they uh, they do great work in terms of local New York issues. I wish every city had a media outlet like The City. And they do this whole article about the grade Eric Adams gives himself on his first year. And, um, look, the mayor's had a lot to deal with the first year that he's been in office. He had a, um, you know, he had a a fire caused by one of the deadliest fires in New York City history. He's had the killing of two rookie police officers, the first of many line-of-duty deaths this year. He had to shepherd the city through a migrant housing crisis as tens of thousands of of migrants arrived on planes and buses sent directly from the southern border with thousands more coming. You have the continued COVID crisis. You have the uh, lagging unemployment, uh, unemployment problem. You have tourism numbers still crawling back to where they were pre-pandemic, not to mention the monkeypox outbreak. You have a lot of other issues going on in New York. Being mayor of New York, they, you know, John Lindsay used to call it the second toughest job in America. I think there's a strong case to be made that it's the toughest job in America. But that will save that discussion for another day. I recognize there's a lot going on. I'm listening to this interview that the mayor did with this reporter from the city, and I'm just astounded. I'm astounded at two levels. One, I don't know how the mayor ignores so many of the glaring problems that he's had with corruption, namely uh, his own uh, uh, Department of Buildings commissioner forced to resign in scandal, his attempt to appoint his brother at a very high-paying job as uh, the head of his security detail, the decision to give Philip Banks such a high-profile deputy mayor position. I don't want to get into the details, but the point is there's a lot. But the other thing that astounded me is how weird it is that the mayor's being asked to grade himself. I mean, that's so stupid. Everyone's going to give themselves a good grade. But you don't want to give it too good because you don't want to sound like you're, you know, you don't want to sound like you're immodest. Imagine that if you, at work you could give yourself a performance evaluation. Well, what kind of job do you think you're doing? I think I'm doing a great job. All right, let's move on. And this is the stupidest thing in the world. The people that should give Mayor Adams or any politician the grade of how well they're doing are the people living in the city. And I thought to myself, huh, self, you say? We've done on this program a... uh, a call back to the days of Get At Grant, where we invite people to call in with nothing but criticism for me. We've called it Get At Frank. And whenever we do those, there's always some people that sneak in with uh, different with different compliments and things like that. We don't. That's not the point of the exercise. But I thought, I thought to myself, gee, you know, we we got the ratings yesterday, doing very well. And things are going really well, ratings-wise, but there's all these listeners... I wonder what grade, if they were asked to grade me, the Frankster, what grade they would give. 
So uh, those of you that are on hold, I will get to you on whatever subject you want. And those of you that want to call in on any subject you want, feel free, 800-848-9222. But uh, I wanted to invite you to offer me a grade. It could be whatever, A+, plus, A-, minus, A, B+, plus, B, B-, minus, C+, plus, C, C-, minus, D+, plus, D, D-, minus, or F. I mean, F, I mean, come on, I'm not, you're not going to give me an F. I'm, F is somebody that's not showing up, that's showing up drunk every day, that shows up uh, when the show is already begun. You can't give me an F. I think reasonably the absolute lowest grade you could give me is a D minus. So what I want to invite you to do is, even if you're calling on other issues, you could still comment on that, but is invite you to tell me what your grade for the past year of this show is and why. And if you've been listening less than a year, you can offer your grade for what it's been for since you started listening, the last two months, three months, four months, five months, whatever. Um, But uh, I I think I'm curious, genuinely, um, and maybe it's an opportunity for me to get some good constructive criticism. Maybe it's an opportunity for me to do more of what's uh, something you like. Maybe it's an opportunity for me to do less of something you don't like. Whatever grade you have for me, Answer me honestly. What do you think it is? And why? 800-848-9222. Hate that guy. That's 800-848-922. And I promise uh, I'm not going to take anything personally. I'm not going to get upset. I'm not going to yell at you. I have no interest in doing that. I uh, am all about uh, using this as an opportunity to learn for myself and have other people hear your perspective on what grade you give. Imagine if Mayor Eric Adams had done that. Say, you know, Ed Koch, one of the things that I loved about him, one of the many things, is when he was mayor, he would ask people, how am I doing? And uh, I asked the the mayor in interviews that I did with him over the years how that came to be and why he continued with that. Because the answer he got wasn't always a nice one. And he said, because in New York, that's a city where if you ask a New Yorker how you're doing, they'll really tell you. Well, now we're asking the whole nation, how are we doing? 800-848-9222. But you can comment on other issues if you want. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Hey, hey, Frank. Um, I will give you a, a, a minus A or A plus. Wow. Objectively, That's pretty good. objectively. Wow. Because, I mean, you're, you're a great interviewer. Like You produced the, uh, you produced them that gave me Roger Stone, right? Yes, but I don't. I don't want your grade for the radio show to no, reflect other saying, work that I've you done. You should have produced. You should have produced the Betty and Barney Hill thing. That's what I called in about. That story had some credibility. Then we can get back to your grade in a minute. <laughs> but that story had a lot of credibility. Um, it was prominent because of the constellation thing. I don't know if you remember that part of the story. But now with Barack Obama, like it has less credibility because like he was president of the United States. What was he? What he could have made some moves then about the UFO thing. You know, and I don't know if he's trying to be relevant. I mean, it kind of, uh, you know, it, it, it just uh, it takes away from the story. You know what I mean? And, and like someone said, we don't know what these things are. Who doesn't know what these things are? Someone in the government knows. Uh, you know, even Bill Clinton said, um, what did Bill Clinton say? He said, there's some things I just don't know. So, um, you know, someone knows what they are. They just can't tell. Him. These people who say they're going to find out, they're never going to find out. They, the story is where they're from. They're not from outer space. They're from here. They're from down here. But I mean, it's it's so it's like uh, they what was did, did, I I missed part of the interview. He, did he talk about the constellation? 
Uh, no, actually, we didn't. But I can promise you this will not be the last interview that we have done on the Barney and Betty Hill story. And when yeah, I interviewed, yeah, it was a great story, great movie too. When yeah. I interviewed their niece, Kathleen Martin, she did uh, refer to the consolation thing. So if I could find that right. interview, I'll send it over to you if you email me, Eric. Eric, thanks for the call. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Josie is in New Jersey. Hello, Josie. Hello, Frank Morano. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. I give you an A plus. You're very articulated. <laughs> Wow. That's nice. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, I, I, I thank you, Josie. I appreciate that. Yes. Uh, that's very kind of you. Well, look, I'm assuming that if you're listening that you're going to give me a decent grade. But I don't understand why. I don't – you know, a lot of people listen to this show, and I see the comments in Facebook. Uh, Facebook um, – if you go to facebook.com slash group slash Radio Morano, a lot of people listen to all four hours of the show – and seemingly hate everything about it. They hate everything I'm doing. They hate all the uh, the music we play, the guests we have hate on. Hate that guy. So there are people that um, have varying views. And uh, please, don't be afraid to share that. 800-848-9222. George is in Queens. Hello, George. Yeah, hi. I, I, you know, I listen to you mostly in the mornings of a dialysis patient. I get you early in the morning. And Sorry. I, I kind of rate you a B. I'll take it. But- you know, sometimes sometimes you your lead into discussions are very lengthy, and that's, that's why I would rate you a B. That's fair. And the other thing, sometimes I'm waiting for you to drop the other shoe on something. When you were talking about that judgeship before, you mentioned some unions, and being a union member historically before I retired, uh, I was wondering what unions are expressing opposition to this judge. Well, it's actually get that from you. Yeah, it's well, it's well because in those commentaries we we only have about it. We usually have three minutes. Today that we had we had two. Uh, but um, yeah. uh, I, I, there there have been a few. Uh, you have um, uh, the uh, let me pull up my list here because I did have that right right in front of me. Um, the uh, okay, uh, CWA, uh, which is uh, which is one. A CWA is a very powerful union uh, here in New York. The union leaders there uh, are not happy with uh, with Judge LaSalle. Uh, 32BJ, they're not happy with Judge LaSalle. The New York City uh, and Vicinity District Council of Carpenters, uh, they did put out a statement praising him. So it's not as if every union is against him, just a couple of them. But uh, thank you for the honest grade there, George. Appreciate that. Uh, 800 Joe is in Ron Konkuma. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank, before I grade you, I want to wish you a happy and healthy new year. And um, what can I say? I know I'm going to be bipartisan here. I, I give you an A for addiction. Uh, <laughs> I'm addicted to the show. I, uh, I to you all the time, Frank. And the reason why is you're very intelligent. I enjoy um, your interviews. Um, I like your segments with uh, Dr. Sky. And um, I don't know, I, I, like I said, I got a lot of family members involved listening to you, friends. And you have a great show. That's, that's the bottom line. You're very kind, Joe. Thank you. Happy New Year. I appreciate your comments very, very much. By the way, looking for honest feedback, not looking for, you know, brown nosing or anything like that. Uh, so please don't feel at all compelled to give uh, an inflated grade at all. 800-848-9222. Russell is in North Carolina. Hello, Russell. Hey, Frank. No, no, uh, no, no butt kissing here. Uh, I would, I would say a B plus. 
I, I was teetering. I was thinking about A minus, but I don't know. Maybe. Man, it's such a high grade. Hey, B plus so, is great. Plus that's the same. Nice, that's right? the same. Cra- that's the same grade Eric Adams gave himself. I'll take it. Well, that's true too. And speaking of Eric Adams, I got to thinking, man. He's only got to make it till April. You know why, right? Why? Because come come April, Mister Three Hundred and Sixty Million, Forty Million a Year, Aaron Judge is going to be playing. So New York's going to start watching him, and they'll boo him <laughs> instead of Eric Adams when he's striking out all the time. Fair enough, Russell. Fair enough. Thank you, Larry on Long Island. Hello, Larry. Frank, I'm going to give you an A plus. I'm going to tell you why. Uh, you've done something since you uh, became a host on this show. In all the years since I was maybe six or seven years old, I've loved talk radio, but I've only made two phone calls into my into radio shows in my life. Fifty plus years ago, Bob Grant, and one call to WFAN. You have turned me into not a regular caller, but you've turned me into somebody who needs is compelled to respond to things that you do, or just to respond to subjects. It's a great show. Thank you very much, Larry. I appreciate that. Uh, I know Sherman in Manhattan had called on another issue, um, and that's fine. If you want to give a letter grade, that's fine, Sherman, or just make your comment about whatever else you wanted to talk about. No, absolutely, Frank. Thank you very much for your time. And, uh, you know, bottom line is I'm always a team player. I would love to give you a grade. The grade I'm going to give you in this present moment would be um, a B, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I think the B is a, a, a very good grade. Uh, but I'll tell you what my uh, constructive uh, a criticism, my constructive criticism would, would be this. Um, I think sometimes you are a little bit too preoccupied with uh, that uh, a narcissist and maybe the sociopath down the dial from you. Uh, I don't want to mention his name. You know, that's another pet peeve about people that call your show and they mention other hosts all the time or they mention it. That's a little weird to me. Other shows, other hosts. So I think you mentioned you, you, you a little too much with uh, – the guy uh, down the dial from you. I think if he doesn't like you, doesn't want to speak to you, then forget about him. It's very simple. I think the more you mention that it's concerning to you, you're perplexed, the more energy and power you're giving him. I, uh, the next point I'll make, I'm sorry. What you no, say? no, go ahead. Go ahead. Absolutely. Please. Right. And then the next thing will be same thing with that guy, uh, Lionel. Um, listen, here's just my opinion. I, I, I think he's a very intelligent guy, but I think he's, Slightly overrated. I think his, I think his style of uh, being a celebrity and, and, and a host is kind of the past. I think you're the present moment in the future. I think if he doesn't want to talk to you anymore, forget about him too. I think when you're mentioning these guys on your show, it's, I don't know if that comes off uh, too, too cool in terms of your image, your show itself. I think don't give them any publicity. Don't don't mention them. If they if they, if they have the nerve to not appreciate and value you as a human being and as a, a great radio host, then definitely you should have the attitude they have towards you. Uh, and so that's my honest opinion. Well, thank uh, you, Sherman. Thing I'll say. Yeah, you're very welcome. One last point mm-hmm. is that you know I'd love to hear a little more variety with the the music. Uh, obviously, it's not a you know it's a talk show. But have you ever heard of the group The Cramps? The Cramps. I don't know that I have. Uh, I would love for you to try some of this stuff out. I, I guarantee you you'll love it. Uh, three quick songs. Uh, Human Fly, She Said, and I Can't Hardly Stand It. I think I, I have it in reverse order in terms of the, the last one is my, I listen to it nightly, daily, mm-hmm. The Cramps. Uh, Human Fly, 
she said, I can't hardly stand it. I think I can't hardly stand it. It's mind-blowing. She tried out even before the show ends. You know, I'm looking looking them up. I'm I'm looking them up now, and I couldn't have Mm -hmm. uh, picked them out. But uh, we actually did play one of their songs once. We played their song, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, in the run-up to Halloween. So I didn't realize it was the cramped song. But uh, I'll make more of an Mm -hmm. effort to play that. Great call, Sherman. Happy New Year. David in the Bronx has been waiting a while. David, what's on your mind? Yes, he has been waiting a while, but it's fine. I'll give you an A. Um, The only reason it's not an A-plus is because I'm not a big fan of the UFO, JFK-type stuff, which you do delve into pretty often. But other than that, you know, you handle your guests very well. You do great interviews, and you don't tolerate a lot of nonsense from some of your callers, which is a plus. Um, I did have a comment from the last hour, but I'll save that for next year. But I do have a question. Because while I was holding, you talked about certain mafia stuff a bit, and it had me thinking about a scene from The Godfather. Now, you remember the scene after Sonny is killed, and I guess it's called the commission. We're having their meeting to make peace. Yes. With um, I forgot the name of the guy. Yeah, that was Barzini. The whole Bar- Barzini. Barzini. All right. So there's in that scene. In Tatalia. The heroin. Right. right. They're discussing the heroin trade, and they come up with they're going to dump it in minority communities, basically the black community. Now, was that based on an actual decision by the commission, or is that just artistic license by Puzo? You know, that is a great question. I uh, I am not ashamed to say I actually don't know the answer to that, but um, I will find out the answer to that, and uh, I will report back uh, when I re- return, if not at 6 a.m., maybe on Tuesday, first show of the new year. That is a great question. Uh, I, I had heard that as a rumor for a long time, but I don't know if that's a rumor based on, on fact or if that's one of those things where the movie kind of created the myth. Uh, that's a great question. I don't know, uh, but let me uh, – I will research that, actually. That's fairly researchable. All right. Have a happy new year, Frank. Hey, you Thank too, you. David. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, it's funny with movies and the mob, but movies and anything. You know, before the film The Godfather, they never, ever would refer to the head of a mafia family as a godfather. That film – first the book, but then the film – That made it so that mob figures would emulate the language of the movie and call mob bosses the godfather. Isn't that wild how the movie actually, it was a case of life imitating art, but that's neither here nor there. That's a good question, though, that David raised. I'm I'm going to explore that. Roy is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, Roy. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Great. Thank you. Hey, I'm not not one to call in, uh, but... I got to give you a C to a C minus. I'll take it. Any, give me some explanation. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, well, I'm a longtime listener of Curtis. He's the main reason I listen. But you, and don't take it personally. Uh, sometimes you just carry on about subjects I don't care for about glitter. And well, when you do that, I need to switch switch stations. You know, or today you were talking about Elf on a Shelf or something like that. Well, I switched over to Fox. So, and a lot of times you don't know how to pronounce things. Florida, Connecticut, uh, Yo, certain states. Um, I don't know. But I think if you didn't go on and talk so much and you let other people chime in and speak, I, I like your interviews when you have them. <laughs> most, most of them are interesting. 
It's just my opinion. Hey, I appreciate it, Roy. Thank you. I appreciate the feedback very much. And I appreciate that it's an honest review. You know, the guy had a grade, and he had a great reason for it. Can't argue with that. 800-848-9222. Sean is uh, from the Commonwealth of Virginia. Hello, Sean. Hello. Hello. Uh, I'm proud and glad to give a grade. And a lot of people down here that pick up your show there in New York really like it. But I'm kind of a I'm a guy that notices talent, you know. I'm, I traveled a lot on the job and I met certain celebrities and so uh, some that I like, you know, through the years. And, and like Lee Marvin, one time I met him in Arizona two or three times in the airport. But I went up and talked to him. And uh, he was a great guy. But anyway, you're in that category. Uh, uh, one time I called in and said, you're a little bit of Walt Disney, because Walt Disney had a sign in his office, if you can dream it, you can do it. He didn't use his, lose his childlike quality to like things. You were talking at Christmas about the uh, Charles Dickens of Christmas Carol movies. Lots of people always liked that. My mother liked Charles Dickens because uh, he was. They, she thought he was kind of a religious writer and a great writer of the poor. And the way you handle uh, people that call in that are nervous, the females and stuff, the older people, the younger people, you handle them so beautifully. Uh, they'll call in nervous. You can hear it in their voice. And once they start talking to you, you put them right at ease. But you've got a lot going for you you don't know about. And I hope you'll try to take care of your health so you can be around a long time. Uh, I hope the people around you hear me say, look out for him, let him rest, drink water, eat right. You know, that type of thing. Because you've got a secret God-given talent. And I hope Curtis hears that. (laughs) What the hell are you talking about? I was talking about on the show. I called him a long time ago. The reason why I used to like certain people in radio business, whenever I could listen, is because they were a decent human being. You are, too. Your parents did a good job, in my opinion. Well, but you've got a future. I'm giving you an A+. plus. Wow. Because of all the people that went into down here that like the show. That's very kind of you, Sean. The show so much down here. I mean, they're, they're camp- and I'm talking about people that, that didn't listen to that radio show until I started telling everybody, you know, how you do your shows. I can't go into all detail, but I can tell you this. If you stay like you are, oh, another thing that I, I'm not much of an advisor. I don't like to give advice, but when I ran into people that I trusted and liked, uh, you know, and they say, well, don't worry about criticism. Jesus Christ was criticized. Many people in show business were criticized. But Lee Marvin told me two things one time. When I, not, I'm not bragging that I met him. I'm bold enough to go out and talk to him. But he gave me a photo that he had of him. Uh, I told him it was for my mother, but actually I liked him too, and my mother <laughs> liked him. Uh, he died way too young. But anyway, he got a bad surgery. So if you ever go in for medical, go somewhere good in New York. It's, they've got good medical stuff, but be careful 
where you go. But Sh- I, Sean, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I, I got to run. I want I want to give some other people a chance to weigh in, but you're very kind to you say all that. Thank a you, plus Sean. All. That's very nice. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Wayne is on Long Island. Hello, Wayne. Yes. Good morrow, as you say. And uh, I thank you for your show. I have to give you two grades. And the first one is a D minus. I'll get to that second. And the second one is an A. Now, let me give you the A first. The A is for elocution, delivery, your um, command of the English language, your overall presentation is pure excellence. Uh, yes, as with Frank, you know, you're up there at the top of, of you know, radio broadcasters. In fact, I met Peter Jennings personally, and I will have to tell you that in terms of delivery, I'm going to put you right up there with Peter Jennings. Now, the D minus, sir, if you can bear this. Sure. Hey, is for, are you there? Yeah, I'm listening. Oh, great. Okay. You know, D minus, I hope you're going to listen through. So the D minus, sir, is for several factors. Number one, content. Believe it or not, you're going to get a D minus. I'll tell you one second. The second part of of that, I'm going to put an asterisk on the D minus because maybe, maybe, I don't know, and you don't have to reveal it, but maybe somebody told you, you just can't cover these. Here's the list. Don't you dare cover these. And now I'm going to tell you why it's D minus. In a situation and in an environment, in a historical situation that we are in, I'm talking about the nation and the world, but particularly the United States of America, you have avoided the number one topic, the number one concern, and you have completely – oh, yeah, I know you covered it a little here and there. You've completely avoided the depth the depth and the breadth of the reality of what the hell is, as far as my expression, what's going on with our elections, what's going on with the the social media being completely entwined with the number one, supposedly the number one law enforcement agency of this United States of America. And, you know, and and when you have your guests, here's part of the D minus, when you have your guests, you completely avoid really, really cutting-edge questions. I mean, I know I appreciate the fact that last night you said, I'm not going to bother interviewing this you know, representative who lied and all that stuff on his resume because everybody else already asked him 5 million questions. But tonight, and I thought she went overboard, Tulsi Gabbard literally knifed this guy, this I don't want to name him either. This so-called, you know, new congressperson that had a lie on his resume for whatever his reasons were, and I'm not accepting that as acceptable. But the fact is, she literally knifed this guy to death. Well, she didn't literally knife him; she figuratively knifed him. Okay, she figuratively knifed him. You know, but as far as his career, you know, she really torched this guy, and you know, with this, with this, with the uh, Cheshire Cat beauty and and delivery that she has, which is excellent. She really sort of just, you know, one shiv after the other. She never stopped. She never let up. And I don't think that was, you know, she's not a journalist, so she didn't really know how to, uh, you know, as you would have sort of sidestepped and got, that's where you go to your A+. You have a tremendous ability to to really, you see, that's the thing that bugs me. You have the capability to be nice 
to go into the depths, to become an Edward R. Murrow, or, you know, and really, really slam into what is the truth here. But you're, you're sidestepping it. You're avoiding it. Wayne, um, uh, thank you. I appreciate this. I want to get to some other fe- people here before we do the $1,000 Minute. I appreciate such a thoughtful evaluation. I want to do – we're going to do the $1,000 Minute in just a minute. Uh, so we're already kind of late here. Uh, I want to try and get at least three or four more of these letter grades because this is actually very helpful uh, to hear how people are thinking. The one thing I'm going to ask is if you can keep your remarks brief. And um, in, in, and I appreciate the what the fella did there in terms of being so thorough – but there's no need to bifurcate the grade. Rather than say, I'm going to give you an A plus and a D minus, just say, I'm going to give you a C. You know, just you can kind of average everything out. But if you can, just be be a little pithy, just so we can get to more people. So it's a little consideration for your fellow callers. Let me say hello to um, Kevin in New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Uh, okay, Frank. Yeah, wow. I will be brief. Um, I'm going to give you an A for two reasons. Number one, you're the most... Uh, prepared host ever listen to a lot of radio i, I especially curtis i love curtis the ear to mind all that but you can tell he just goes on these tangents you're very prepared when somebody calls in and you don't know anything you quickly punch it in into your laptop and bing bang boom you got the facts amazing but the main reason why you get an a because i disagree with like three out of four things you say and i still listen to every minute of the show that's the sign of a great Radio host. Well, thanks, Kevin. I appreciate that. Uh, have, a, have a great New Year. I appreciate the feedback. And uh, I do think it's sincere. Annie is in Manhattan. Hello, Annie. Uh, good morning. Um, I give you a C, Frank. I think your interviews are terrific. I do think you are somewhat self-absorbed. Um, a little too narcissistic. Everything relates to you. It's you. And when sometimes callers call, you seem so disengaged and you can't wait to get them off the line so that you can go back to talking about yourself. Um, I find that really annoying. Um, And that's my commentary. Hey, that's not bad, Annie. Thank you. Uh, I wasn't really listening to much of what you said, so I can't really respond thoroughly, but I appreciate it. 800-848-9222. Mike (laughs) is in the Carolinas. Hello, Mike. Wow. Last couple of calls, man. Make them brief. Hey, Frank, uh, tomorrow. Uh, happy hump day. Likewise. You know, I give you I give you a solid capital A. And you know why? Because you engage in conversation. You've got a mind like a steel trap. And, uh, you know, your guests that come on. And i got to say this about Curtis. And I'm listening to Curtis, you know, with the same age. But, Curtis, i got to tell you this, really. You know, of everything you do, start to eat which means enough is enough. You throw a verbal gun at every show, and they, you know, he gets copies of, of, of the rhetoric on your show and this and that. Keep doing what you're doing, Frank. And uh, it was great. I smiled yesterday when uh, uh, Carmine uh, t- took his steps about 10 feet. And you know what? That's why I continue to listen, because uh, you got it going on. And you still, you will continue to carry the torch. WMC after Bob Grant and Bernie, who I became friends with, rest in peace. Thank you, Mike. So, Thank you, Mike. I'm going to do one one last one, and those of you that are holding, you're welcome to continue to hold, uh, but I'm just going to squeeze in one last one here. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Frank. Frank, I'm going to give you an A, um, not an A+, plus because there's always room for some improvement. Um, I've been listening since day one. Um, I like the fact that you're, you make it personal. I disagree with the previous caller. Um, I think you're a great interviewer. You keep the show entertaining and fun because your topics are kind of all over the place. 
Um, the only – and it's not a criticism. It's just an observation. The show has certainly evolved from the beginning. Um, I think it was a little more folksy, which I enjoyed. Um, and it's become, you know, as your popularity grows and your audience grows, the show has to change. I understand that, but it's still excellent every night. And I like the fact that you make it personal. Um, that's fun. And your sarcasm is top shelf. And have a good New Year. Thank you very much, Mike. Appreciate it. $1,000 minute in just a moment. If you want a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, you can do so by calling 800-848-9222. Be the seventh caller to 800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller, we'll give you a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, this will be our uh, fin- my final program of uh, 2022. Unless you're listening on WABC, then I will be back at uh, 6 a.m. in order to uh, bring you... Uh, we're going to do something really interesting. We're going to read through the paper, tell you what's in the news, and then I'm going to give my opinion on it and invite you to do the same. And uh, I'm looking forward to that very much. It's been a lot of fun this week doing that show, getting to reach a different uh, you know, different audience, of kind of folks that may not necessarily be listening at this time. All right. Without further ado, it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Lubertini. Let me say hello to Lee in Baltimore. Hello, Lee. How you doing? I'm doing well, Lee. Lee, have you heard this segment of the show before? Yes, sir. Okay, great. So you know the rules, right? Yes, sir. Okay, if you're ready to go, we'll get started. Go for it. What century is it? 21st century. What is the championship game called in professional football? Super Bowl. What recently elected member of Congress on Long Island has faced controversy over his educational and career history? Santos. Who wrote the book To Kill a Mockingbird? Initials HL, HL. Mankin. No, I'm sorry. No, I, I hope I didn't throw you at it. Harper Lee. Harper Lee wrote oh, To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm sorry about that, Lee. Anyway. Lee, I'm sorry you didn't win. I'm going to put you on hold. Give your information to Kenneth, and we'll send you a consolation prize, okay? Okay, great. Hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. I hope we'll uh, talk again soon. Hey, I'm going to give you a B-plus, too. I'll take it. I'll take it. Thank you, Lee. I bet you if I gave him $1,000, he would have given us an A. 
All right. Hey, speaking of Santos, it's very funny. And again, I, I didn't expect to talk about Santos today, but I just say this. The um, friend of mine, is, I don't want to betray any confidences here, but a friend of mine is uh, an anchor on uh, on Newsmax, okay? And that's a conservative media outlet, and he's friendly with George Santos. And Santos was all set to come on his program last night, either instead of or in addition to going on Tucker Carlson's program. And uh, I said, that's great. What a great news-making potential interview. I said, what happened? He said, they vetoed it. They didn't want it. I said, that's strange. Why wouldn't they want? This is guy is at the heart of the biggest story in the country right now, the biggest political story. Why wouldn't they want that? And this is the theory that we came up with. Based on what the, the Nassau County Republican leaders are saying, They're saying very little, which leads my friend to think that they know a lot more that's coming out about George Santos and his background. And um, the, you know, Chris Ruddy, the CEO of Newsmax, who I used to work for and uh, I, I like a lot, I get along with. Their thinking is he's very close with the Nassau County Republican leaders. And the thinking is they might have given him a heads up and said, don't put that guy on. Don't give him a platform because there's a lot more that's about to come out. So I don't know if that's true, but it was a theory that seemed to fit the facts, which I thought was interesting. By the way, so uh, this is one of those days where, uh, again, I love doing the show. I get a real kick out of doing the show and I get such energy from doing the show. But this was one of those days where. There, I would did not have a moment's rest, and I'm not complaining because obviously it's great to be busy in idle hands at the devil's playground. But I I got home obviously a little later than usual because I was staying to uh, do the first hour of the Sid and Friends in the morning show. But then I had to wake up early because I had to take Carmine to the doctor just for a wellness visit and for a a, a, a shot. He got his measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. Very sorry, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. But um, I'll go to the doctor. And then um, my Uncle Steve, who is engaged to this woman that he just met, pretty much, he called me the night before. And look, my Uncle Steve is my godfather. And like they say in the Mario Puzo novel, you can't really request, refuse a request from your godfather. And uh, he said, look, Pam's parents, uh, excuse me, Pam's whole family is coming over Third, uh, whatever, Tuesday night. And I really want you and Rachel and Carmine and your mom to come over and meet everybody. So obviously, even though it's not exactly terribly convenient, I was going to do that. Oh, but before that, a friend of mine and his wife, they did the pop-in. And this is a couple that my wife really likes, so she was more tolerant of them doing the pop-in. So I had the, uh, the wake up, take Carmine to the doctor, have this couple pop in, and all I wanted to do at this point is take a nap, then go to my Uncle Steve's, and then I went into, went to dinner last night with a friend of mine um, by the radio station, and I had been trying to get together with this fellow for a while. I got together with him. We had a dinner. But on the way to the dinner, another friend of mine calls me. He says, look, I'm in Manhattan tonight. 
can you meet me for 20 minutes after the show, excuse me, um, uh, before, before your show for a drink or something, even if it's a soft drink. I just want to see you before the new year and everything. I'm not going to make it to New Year's Eve Eve. Let me just see you. So I met that person after dinner, and then I came right here and, you know, resumed working on the show. So it was one of those days where it was like, bum, 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 bum. So I meet my friend for a drink. At uh, I don't want to mention the the, the restaurant because it's a restaurant. It's a good restaurant, and I do go there. I meet my friend for a drink, and I said, "All right, I'm only going to do one. Uh, well, let me get a decent drink." And my friend was, you know, was paying, and you know, he's happy to happy to pay. He's got he's got money. So I said, but I would have been happy to pay also. So I said, "All right, let me get a Macallan 18." Now, Macallan 18 is, um, it's a single malt scotch. It's very good. It's um, aged for 18 years. It's a very good scotch. Now, I'm thinking it's going to be $30, $35, maybe $40. At most, $45 with uh, upcharge and everything. It was a healthy pour, generous pour. So I have one. Talk with my friend. Come in and do the show. As I'm preparing to do the show, he calls me. He says, Frank, what did you order? I said, I got a Macallan 18. He said, do you know what they charged me for that drink? I said, no, I have no idea. Was it like $35, $40? He says, they charged me $92. I said, "Uh, John. I said, John, I would not uh, have ever ordered a drink that I thought was $92. And that is far more than I would have ever expected to pay for a McAllen 18. Why and, don't you just apologize? You know, I, I first of all, I did apologize. I said, sorry. And I said, let me Venmo you the money because that's crazy. I don't want you to buy me $92 for three ounces of scotch. At most three ounces. I, I, but don't you think the bartender should have said something like, hey, you know, before you, before I pour this for you, I just want to let you know it's going to be $92. Shouldn't she have said something? Now, my friend, to his credit, he got into a little bit of an argument with the manager there. And I guess they have a history because he said they've exchanged words in the past. And he still not only paid the bill and refused my request to Venmo him, but he then still gave a nice tip to the to the bartender. But I was blown away. And I know we have a lot of bartenders that listen to this show and uh, might be driving home from work right now. There is no excuse for that. I think if you're going to charge someone a crazy amount of money for a drink like that, you have to let them know. You have to let them know it's going to be a crazy amount of money. Because I wouldn't have gotten that. I would have gotten a Macallan 12 or a Woodford or whatever. I don't know. I I mean, I, I would never have ordered a $92 drink. Now, shame on me, I guess, for not asking. But it's like when you when you were in a restaurant or something and they read you the specials. You're not expecting to pay $130 for a seafood tower. They tell they should tell you the prices of the special if it's way out of the ordinary. That really stuck in my craw and I, I felt so bad for my friend because I I didn't want to take advantage of him being generous or anything like that, but I thought that was really crummy. Stop all that drinking and going to uh, – uh, 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 uh. I will be uh, returning to Atlantic City uh, this Friday, so uh, that will be a lot of fun. That's been uh, – that's going to be what I spend most of the day 
after the show is working on today is uh, planning Friday's New Year's Eve Eve party. Uh, still trying to finalize and nail down the wait staff for this Friday night party, which has been interesting. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. We are going to give you an opportunity to be heard. Oh, that's another thing. So this couple that came to visit us, they were all they were going to come to Atlantic City and they were going to go leave on Thursday, which is when I'm leaving. My wife's coming down a day later and I was going to drive down with them. They were going to drive me. Today they tell me, oh, well, we're not coming. So now I have to also arrange transportation to be there on Thursday that doesn't disrupt uh, anybody else's plans. So, I mean, that was a little, a little rude, I thought, to kind of two days before we're supposed to be leaving to spring that on me. All right, 800-848-9222. Uh, we're going to do uh, 15 seconds of fame in just a moment where you get to be heard on any subject for 15 seconds. But Carol in Brooklyn has been holding a while. Let me get to her. Hello, Carol. Hi, um, I'm from Augusta, Georgia, and I moved up to the Bronx. And I was maybe 15 years old, and the Italians did bring heroin into the black community because I was living in a black community, and I had a boyfriend, and he was selling the heroin, but sadly for him, he used his product. Mm. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, so did he did he overdose? No, he did not. Good thing he, you know, got up out of it and he was doing he's doing well. He even went to jail, you know. But I saw the Italian. I was standing there with the two of them, my boyfriend on one side, the Italian in the middle, and me on the other side. And my boyfriend gave him a roll of money. It was so big he couldn't really close his hand. And he gave it to the Italians. Carol, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. I I have to run. I I think David's question was more about whether the the that was standard practice or whether that was an actual directive from the commission. I don't want to speak for him, but uh, I think it was about where that order kind of came from. All right. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. If you want to stay in touch with me over the next few days, uh, you can do so via email. You can email me at uh, frank.morano at uh, wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at uh, wabcradio.com. But we will end this program as we do just about each and every program by giving you an opportunity to sound off for 15 seconds. The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Neil on Staten Island. Happy and healthy New Year, Frank, to you and your family. 
obviously I'll take you out for a drink, but you put the kibosh on that. <laughs> Pete on Staten Island. Frank, with online, bend your knees when you walk with them. Pete, I'm losing you. I'm sorry. Silas. Okay. One angle I didn't look at with Santos. What if he does a bang-up job? <laughs> David. One of the strangest things about George Santos is that he hasn't had a family member or friend come forward to vouch for him. Roger. Take the two elves and put them on a shelf or mantle facing each other directly. And now Carmine has an important example of uh, checks and balances. I hope you and your family have a safe and healthy new year. Thanks. Happy new year. Leo. Happy holidays, Frank. Uh, A minus just because uh, bothers me when Curtis Leva insulting your wife or your mother and you don't denounce him. Larry. I give you a B plus just because I feel like you skirt a lot of issues. How about doing a show on the death of Scalia if you want to talk about Obama? I dare you to do that. You like conspiracy theories, right? Roger. Ray. Hey, Frank, uh, it's like looking at a reality show. You get an A+. Plus. You're more interesting than J.T. Holmes and Amy Robach. <laughs> Frank. I give you an A-plus, Frankie. Uh, have a great uh, New Year, and uh, watch for 31616 on the dial. And finally, Eddie. Biden-itis because you can't fix stupid. All right. Thank you, Eddie. All right. That slams the lid on things for today. Uh, if um, if you care to listen, I'll be back at 6 a.m. on uh, WABC. Listen on WABCRadio.com. If not, I will see you, if all goes according to plan, in 2023. Frank Moreno, good day.